that I know is not going to be around tonight. Uh, so let's begin. We're uh, ready to open the public meeting. Thank you very much. I know we're late. Uh, John Kiernan speaking as a matter of formality. Uh, we open the meeting and uh, by a greeting, this is the October 10th, 2023 uh, meeting of the Milton Conservation Commission. The commission members are appointed by the select board to implement the rules and regulations of the State Wetlands Protection Act and the Milton Town Bylaw governing uh, the wetland resources. Uh, two issues uh, for the public's benefit. One is a matter of formality. We introduce ourselves. Uh, secondly, we invite all to speak and ask questions, <clears throat> make comments, but we do ask that you uh, identify yourself when doing so. Uh, again, my name is John Kiernan. Hans, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hans Van Lingen, commission member. Tom Palmer. Tom, you're on mute. <laughs> still on mute, Tom. Still, still, still. <laughs> when, when do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Good evening. I'm Wendy Garpo, one of the commissioners. All right. Great. And uh, Tom Palmer, member. All right. All right. Is there anybody else on that I, I, I don't see from the commission? All right. Well, we have four members. That's a quorum. Uh, so we will be ready to proceed. Uh, I think we don't have any continuances. Um, actually, I saw Joe. Uh, did I see Joe Federico here today? Um, if anybody's waiting for 1259, I thought that uh, 1259 Brush Hill was going to be continued again, but um, I thought I saw somebody in the in the list that was going to speak to that. Uh, perhaps not. So if members of the public are waiting for that, uh, I believe that that's going to be continued again. And that would be number seven on the list, 1259 Brush Hill Road, Lot C. And number eight on the list, uh, 1259 Brush Hill Road, Lot D. And uh, let me see if this is Milton Cable. Is this Milton Cable Vision? All right, Tom, we, we got it. We were saved. Uh, Shane, get the message out. So we're all set. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. All right. Sorry. Bye. That was Tom Pillar from Milton Cable Vision, and uh, he also was responding to our plea for help. Um, so we're ready to go. Uh, first on the list is request for certificate of compliance 100 School Street. Uh, and I'm not sure who's speaking to that, but would you identify yourself? And you're up and running. I'm the owner of 100 School Street. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you say it again? I don't see your picture. Dean, D-E-A-N, Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. Perfect. Thanks, Dean Lynch. You're good, on. Tell us what's evening. going on. Um, I'm Brad Holmes with ECR assisting Dean Lynch on his uh, request for certificate of compliance. We filed for 100 School Street. Uh, this is an order of conditions that has been somewhat overlooked. It is, goes back to 1986. So this is uh, probably one you don't see very often. Uh, this is a uh, order of conditions for work at Mr. Lynch's property at 100 Dean Street. This predates the rivers protection regulations, so it was within the buffer zone to Pine uh, Tree Brook. Uh, their order of conditions at that time in 1986 was fairly uh, simple as in the sense that it only had a few special conditions. Uh, we have it didn't require an as-built plan, but we have prepared an as-built plan to show that we're in compliance with the the order uh, that was been submitted to the 
conservation office. I can pull up the plan if you like and cite photographs. If um, you if you would, Brad, that would be very sure. helpful to us. Uh, host disabled participant screen sharing. Uh, can you still do that for us? I, I it's not allowing oh, me no, to. No, I know I, you can't. Okay, I, sure. I, but I thought the uh, the folks from built in cable vision was still here. Uh, who opened us up? Oh, good Lord. I think we lost him as well. Um, we did. Anybody left from uh, Sean McDonough or Tom Pillar? I just hung up on. Uh, let me see if I can get him back. I'll take it off. Thank you. Thank you. Brad, thanks. Uh, thanks for your patience. Go ahead. Sure. Thank you. Uh, this is the prop, Mr. Lynch's property at 100 School Street. This is the front yard. I'll just go through the pictures briefly. Uh, this is from the outer buffer zone looking at the house, uh, looking at the rear of the house, standing from the edge of the yard looking towards Pine Tree Brook. And you can see Pine Tree Brook here, um, which is to the west of the site. As I said, the, the order of conditions was from 1986, which you don't see every day. Um, there was not a requirement for an as-built plan, but there were three special conditions that the toe of the slope of the foundation not be more than 15 feet away from the nearest edge of foundation and top of said slope not to be above 36-foot contour. With the, with the exception of the slope bank around the foundation, uh, there should be no filling or alteration between the toe of said slope bank and Pine Tree Brook. And the applicant shall include in a deed to premises specific reference to this order of condition. So we're here to clean up and close out this order of condition so that Mr. Lynch can uh, sell the property. We did get perform an as-built plan. Um, here's the 36-foot contour that was referenced. And you know, as you could see in the photographs, the, the yard is modest uh, around the, the property. It wasn't expanded. Uh, further towards Pine Tree Brook, uh, when times happens with with creep since uh, order conditions from 1986. As I said, this is prior to the Rivers Protection Act. Uh, you know, the buffer to the river would have been the resource area. We're not in a flood zone. So with that, we I'll bring it back to the commission. We're seeking to get a certificate of compliance to close out this old order. Right. And Brad, have you uh, uh, submitted an attestation that this is in substantial compliance with the uh, original order conditions? Yes, we put a cover letter to the certificate of compliance stating that it was in compliance. Right. Questions from commissioners? Um, I have one. Could I share my screen? Uh, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, let me give it a try. If if I need to do something, tell me. Um, or tell Hans. He might be able to help you better than I. Yeah, you know, I haven't. There's a picture I want to show. I'm hitting the share screen. All right, maybe this is it. Yes, you started your screen sharing. Yeah, that's, I think, looking at the lot from uh, Google Earth and or uh, Google Maps. 
And uh, Brad, I think you just said that the order said no alteration beyond a certain point. It looks to me like that bank is being landscaped in the inner riverfront area. It just look at the one bank and then look at the bank on the other side. Looks like people have been working in there. Um, I don't know the date of this photo, but it's true there was no Rivers Act when the order was issued, but it seems like the order didn't include permission to tidy up the riverbank. So I, I don't know, I, it doesn't seem like there's compliance with the order if the order said no alteration beyond a point and yet it looks like alteration is ongoing. I can read to you again what the special conditions were, but I was on site when I said landscape the area, you can even in this photo, and I can go back to the photos that I submitted in the notice of intent, you can clearly see the limit of the lawn. Uh, obviously I wasn't at this property throughout the years to what the area within the buffer zone and riverfront area have not been uh, landscaped. Uh, I don't, it, it's, it's a dense canopy overhead. There's a lot of Norway maple in there. Um, you see the difference so, between the bank on the left? And I, the bank I, I, I the do, right? but I don't, I don't see that there's been any recent alteration. I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, but if you're on site, you can see that it's, it, it, there isn't any area that there you would notice anything with uh, cut vegetation or any recent impact. I, I don't know what the history of this, the, the area was before, but I wouldn't go from uh, the left side of the picture to the to the right side of the picture and, and make a determination that there's been an alteration. Well, it's pretty obvious to me. I mean, just as an observer of plants in general. And the current owners have been there for like 30 years or something, right? So, yeah, I, I think if if you don't do something, stuff you get in an herb layer, which is true on the left and not on the right. So I would guess that there's been mowing there. Um, and that's alteration that it doesn't seem like the order allowed for. Um, how could we repair this situation? Um, could we add a condition saying that the inner riverfront area shall be allowed to return a natural condition? So, I don't know. I, th I think that the new owner will come and say, well, look, this has all been tidied up and that's what I'll do too. Isn't that what's likely to happen? I, I think, Tom, um, th there may be a, a way to do this, but if we if we issue the certificate of compliance um, on the basis of the three conditions that Brad just uh, read, that would allow the compliance uh, to be filed and go forward. We would then lose our jurisdiction other than under the current Rivers Protection Act, we could issue a, not an enforcement order, but a, a, a make a statement that we expect compliance, and this would not be recorded in the Registry of Deeds, um, 
well, the certificate of compliance would be, and the original order of conditions already is, but we could just suggest in writing that the Rivers Protection Act now does govern the land, and it is the inner riparian uh, zone, and there shall be no alteration. And Without if there were, what's that? Yeah. Well, it, it's it's not an order. It's not an order because yeah. if we issue the certificate of compliance, we don't have any jurisdiction other than the general jurisdiction to monitor the the banks, the inner riparian zones. Oh, who uh, would this communication you're talking about go to? Well, this is being sold, Brad. Is that correct, oh, Mr. Lynch? Yes. Yes. Right. We could simply write a letter uh, introducing ourselves and welcome to Milton and. Um, it, it is our view that the inner riparian zone should be left alone. Is it under agreement now? Yeah. I, I don't have that answer. I mean, we're whatever we're, we're held to the rivers protection regulations, right? As, as any and 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 standards of the buffer zone. As I said, we did, this order is from 1986 and pertains to the construction of the house and. You know, the, there wasn't, as, as we said, there wasn't a Rivers Protection Act at that time. But it, you, you, did see quote, the, uh, you quoted a condition that said no alteration beyond a certain point. Correct. And I, 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 think I, I don't want to go off track, but I, I, I think it was pertaining to the house construction. You can see that the house construction and yard were maintained. It's almost 100 feet away from the river. Um, I think that that pertained to the construction of the house. I can't say that there's been an alteration here. I don't know the history, and and but um, what I was trying to say is any property and working now. There's a reverse protection act, obviously. Any prop, any property owner is going to be held to the to the regulations. So, of course, we wouldn't have a issue if there's a letter that states, "Hey, welcome to Milton. You have a riverfront and buffer zone. Any work that you do in the." any work that requires a permit, you need to come to the Conservation Commission. Uh, I'd agree that would be an okay solution. The problem is we don't know who we should send the letter to. Uh, it just seems like I'm a little worried it will be lost in the, you know, what we I would really like personally is if whoever is showing this property would say to every prospective buyer, Oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to mow down here. Yeah, that was a suggestion uh, that, that we actually discussed about a year ago in terms of just plain old fashioned public education about what the Conservation Commission does and uh, how do we, we as a town best protect our resources. And actually somebody made the suggestion that every new homeowner should be, have a sort of a welcome basket, uh, including a letter from the from the uh, Conservation Commission saying you have wonderful resources in your, on your property and uh, we'd like to help you preserve them. And we yeah, ask for I, assistance as well. I guess what I'm concerned about is house will be sold. The new owner will get this news and say, well, nobody told me, you know, that's, I see that coming. Um, well, yeah, that that may be true, but I mean, every citizen is obligated to be aware of the law. Is it true that a lot of them are not? Yes, that's true. But is the owner on the meeting tonight? I thought Mr. Lynch was I'm here. 
Oh, yes, good. Exactly. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, so let, let me give you a little this? bit of history. Of it. Let me give you a little history on the on the property itself. Okay. Sure. Um, the uh, the original owner, the builder of the house, was a widow of one of the firemen that lost his life at the Vendome fire, and she bought this property, built a house. The town of Milton never charged her any real estate taxes throughout the 18 years that she lived here. He did all of the uh, work outside, the trench in the back for the uh, cistern, the Roman cistern, so that the, the, the water remains uh, out back and not in the cellar. And she did any plantings that uh, are out there. And I've maintained that since I bought it 18 years ago with no changes. All I did do with at the wooded area is I, I did take down some dead wood uh, uh, trees so, so they wouldn't fall in the house. I hired a company to do that. And um, I burned firewood and uh, I get a permit and, and uh, stack some, some branches down there and have a fire in April generally with my neighbor. And everything else has remained absolutely the same as when she had it. So I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't see a reason to to penalize this this property owner because it's. I mean, in my opinion, this is maintained even though it's not in a completely natural condition. It's not a formal landscape. It hasn't been significantly altered. It still is maintaining. I mean, there's there's microtopography in there. It it is missing some understory, but I mean that's that's not. I would say that's that's probably in line of the intent of the original notice of intent application, and and what I would guess they were trying to avoid is to extend a a formal landscape all the way out to the riverfront, which hasn't happened here. It seems to be well maintained. The spacing between the trees, I and mean, that's this is I don't see a negative to the condition of this property, in my opinion. Are you uh, up on the Rivers Act, Hans? The order of conditions. I am the Rivers Act. The Rivers Act. So that's not part of this conversation, Tom. Well, it is it does apply to Pine Tree Brook, which is what we're looking at. For any future proposed, if there's any proposed activity, yes. Correct. But that's but isn't not that the easy doing. way out. Is isn't that the path of least resistance, Hans? You are correct. I mean, the 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 order of conditions was pre-Rivers Act, and it seems to be in compliance. And we've got Brad's attestation to that effect. Now we're looking at uh, the Rivers Act is applicable. Then it was not. So right now, uh, there can't be any alteration within the inner riparian zone. But all we have to do is give the, the new owner notice of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that would be fine if we find a way to do that. I just don't know what the routine is for making that happen. Well, routine or not, I think in this case, we can do it. Um, and, and, you know, I'd ask Mr. Lynch that if the new owners, uh, um, you know, if you can reach them, just tell them that you're, they're going to get a letter from us and saying we'd like you to stay in compliance with the Rivers Protection Act. And that is not to alter the uh, anything within the 100 foot uh, jurisdictional line from the river. That's the inner riparian zone. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense to say why that rule exists as well, right? 
I think we all understand why it exists. Uh, if you leave a river bank in a natural condition, it helps filter runoff, helps protect the ground, helps keep sediment from going into the stream. Those banks look a little bare, like it, you could get runoff through there. That's the reason. It's just to help protect the resource for everybody. Doesn't mean it's not still the private property. It just means that it has more rules about it. Would you be willing to write could that I letter? Make a, could I make a, a comment? You sure can. Hi, I am the abutter to the north um, to this property, and I just have two points. One is that I've been here 15 years, I think. Hi, my name is Ruth Culloden, sorry about that. Um, and I have never seen the present property owner mow or dig or pull any understory from that, what we're looking at in this image. My other comment is that um, I've been making a great effort to work on the inner riparian zone of my property to eliminate invasive plants um, and let whatever will come up, come up. Um, I would like to comment that the property across the brook, which has been neglected and abandoned for some time, is basically a forest of euonymus. And I'm not sure that's the kind of understory we would like to have happen. Um, it's an, a horribly invasive plant. It, it eliminates everything else from growing almost completely. And there are other invasives over there, but that's the one that we see in this image. The, the to the left there so if uh and norway maples are another issue i won't go into that but um if you were going to direct anything in a letter i would encourage if you want understory in this space to help erosion i would encourage in that letter to um maybe not change anything but encourage the new owners to plant native plants with deep root systems or whatever you would like to um, make the inner riparian a healthier place. Uh, thank you. I, I agree that you can see a lot of euonymus on that other bank. On the other hand, just because it's invasive doesn't mean it doesn't do the things that plants do. So it's not ideal, but yeah, I, I thank you for that comment. It's right on the money, I think. Absolutely. Thank you, Ruth. Mm -hmm. All right. Are there uh, any questions or comments from commissioners? Are there abutters or, and I can't see everybody's hands. Um, so somebody, if somebody can see a hand raised, uh, please tell me. Uh, are there abutters or members of the public that uh, would like to make a comment or um, suggestion? I don't hear anything and I, I can't see anything in the hand raised section. Uh, so I'll entertain a motion to issue the certificate of compliance based upon the attestation by Brad Holmes that the, the building was done back in, in the mid 1980s 
uh, in substantial compliance with the order of conditions, um, and then simultaneously to have a letter drafted by um, Tom uh, and with the, you know, to share among the commissioners uh, to welcome the new owners and to remind them of uh, their obligations and that of every citizen uh, to protect the inner riparian zone. Is there such a motion? So moved. All right, thanks, Tom. Is there a second? I second. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, any discussion among commissioners? Hearing none, uh, I'll have to do a voice vote. Uh, Hans, how do you vote? I vote yes. And Tom, how do you vote? Yes. Um, and Arthur, how do you vote? Yes. Uh, Wendy? Yes. And I, John Kiernan, vote yes as well. Thanks. That, that's unanimous. Mr. Lynch and uh, Brad Holmes, thank you very much. And Ruth, thank you very much for your comments. Uh, they, are, they are right on the money. Thank you thank very, you very much. much. Have a good night, everyone. All right. You too. Thank you. Okay. All right. Next, up, next on the agenda is 147 Gun Hill Street. I do not know who the presenter is for that. Uh, it's me, David Lazaro. Oh, great, David. Welcome. And uh, tell us what the, about the project. Uh, it's a deck project that extending the existing deck uh, two feet closer to uh, the stream in the back and making it six feet wider along the house. And uh, how far are you from the stream in the back? Uh, it's, I believe it was 50, uh, 56 feet. The 100 foot buffer goes right through the existing house. Um, all right. Uh, what I'm, um, I'm going to pull it up here. Misplaced it. I, I was looking for the plan. I've got, I've got your uh, request for determination of applicability in my hand. We're just very careful about our, uh, in fact, we, we just approved one at a site walk a couple of weeks ago. Uh, on Hurlcroft, we just are very careful about the 25-foot non-disturbance zone. But it was the same kind of project, extending the deck another two feet, or another, yeah. I think it was like three and a half feet towards the... Yeah, uh, it's 50 feet. It's what? It, it's 56 feet to the uh, wetlands. To what? Is it top of bank? Uh, I'm just looking at the plot plan here. I don't know how to share that on my uh oh here let me see if i can do that um, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have the plot planned does does anybody have it in the and I, I sent it to conservation committee the the conservation office All right. Do any commissioners have it? I, I do not. It was not in my package, John. Okay. Why don't we, why don't we do this? Um, why don't we set it up for a site walk, uh, just as we did on Harold Croft Street? Um, and uh, by that time, we, and, and uh, for your benefit, we, we do that on Saturday mornings. We usually start at, <laughs> depending, 8 or 8.30. And uh, it, we just show up at 147 Gun Hill. And if you'd invite us on, we take a look at it. Because what I what I'm concerned is that we make sure that we're we're all using the same uh, measuring point of reference. Is this a top of bank or is it from the uh, a resource area like a vegetated wetland? Uh, it's hard to 
determined from the plot plan. Um, well, believe, you know, technically there should be a, an engineering plan that shows that, but you know, if we, we try to be as <laughs> as cooperative as possible. So the, at the site walk, uh, if it's obvious to us, um, and if if not, uh, Tom, maybe you could take your auger with you. If that's going to be an issue, we can usually pretty well gauge where it is. And then we have a, a uh, tape measure. So make sure you're out of the 25 foot non-disturbance zone. They have an existing wood fence that's at the 50 foot buffer line. And then it says 56 feet to, um, I believe it's top of bank because the edge of the uh, edge of delineate. Delini, I'm sorry, I pronounced it wrong. The wetland markers is shown further away. What wetland markers? Do you, do you know if it was flagged or are you talking it, about something? Similar? It was flagged. I had I had the whole property flagged and then plot plan done. Oh, perfect. Well, that's what we need, but we, we just don't see it in the package. I'm uh, sorry. I, I sent it to conservation last week. I had all, right. all done. Well, from what you say, it's it sounds like an, an easy fix. Um, but why don't we set this up? Uh, let me go around and see who's available. Let's take a look at the next uh, couple of Saturdays. Um, okay. I should know this, but next, what what's the date next Saturday? Let's fourteenth at the fourteenth. Um, That's this, this Saturday is the fourteenth. Yep. Right, and then the twenty first. And then the 28th. So uh, how about the 14th? Um, Hans? So Saturday mornings are are now very difficult for me in general for quite a while. Um, well, for quite a while. How, how about do you want to make it on a Sunday? Um, I can do on a Sunday, yes. But if you can get a quorum on a Saturday, that's easier than. All right. Well, let, let's let's go around. Um, Arthur, are, are you okay on the fourteenth Saturday? Um, right now it looks I'm that I'm okay on the fourteenth or the fifteenth. Okay, Wendy, fourteenth. I I don't see you, Wendy. You may be on mute. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, yes, the, the 14th does work for me. Thank you. All right. That's perfect. And uh, what about Tom? You okay on the 14th? Yeah, I can do that. Dave. Okay. So we, we've got our quorum. Um, so Hans, uh, you can sit this this one out um, and I'll, I'll uh, check with Ingrid and uh, Todd as well. But why don't we plan to be at 147 at 830 um, on Saturday morning? Okay. Is that good? All right. It won't it won't take long, but by that time, uh uh Philip, I don't think is on tonight. Um but I, see if he joined. He yeah. did join. I'm oh, here good. Oh, okay. I'm here. Oh, perfect. All right. Um so Philip, so do you I, have I, those plans? I'll look tomorrow in my office and send them out tomorrow. Ah, perfect. That's I great. Have... All right, that's good. Sorry, so, I didn't come out to you before. 
I'm sorry, say again. I said, sorry, you didn't get them in your packet. I thought they were the end. Oh, okay. All right. Well, th th again, it's easy fix. All right. We'll see you Saturday morning, the, the 14th at um, 830, 147 Gun Hill. All right. Thank great. All right. Next on the agenda is uh, Notice of Attempt 31 Holland Street. Do we have a presenter? Yes, we do. I am here to present for 31 Harlan Street. Let's see. Uh, as I pull up my screen here, my name is Chris Frateroli. I'm a wetland scientist with Goddard Consulting. Uh, we prepared the, the notice of intent submittal for, for this project here. All right, perfect. So I've got a, just a couple of images here to share with you folks. First up, aerial photo of the site. Obviously you can see existing house and pool area at the front of the lot. It's kind of a long skinny lot. And this is just lawn area back here. Uh, you got your driveway and a bit of patio area out here. And then we can move down to the site plan, which I believe you folks should all have. Uh, this shows along here, we have a small isolated vegetative wetland on the neighbor's property that we did flag, as well as uh, a corner, so to speak, of a bordering vegetative wetland across Harlan Street here that does cast a 100 foot buffer onto the site. Uh, and then we can move down. This is that same aerial photo, just with those couple of lines overlaid. Uh, I find this to be a little easier to look at personally. So here we have that isolated vegetative wetland, that flagged wetland line here. Purple line is our 25 foot no disturb. The yellow lines are the 100 foot buffer zone. So you will see that essentially the entire house is within the 100 foot buffer zone, is within conservation jurisdiction. Uh, and similarly over here, you know, we have this little corner of, of BBW on this side that also casts a buffer zone onto the site. And now moving down, this is a little markup of the site plan I put together. Uh, this is the existing house here and back here we have a bit of a deck area. There's a little bit of a bump out of the house here as well. So what you see here in this little yellow green polygon is the area to be demolished. And then as we move down, you'll see this is the, the addition, so to speak. Uh, it's mostly you know, interior work, but we do also uh, end up with a slight expansion of the footprint of the house, which is this little green area here. Uh, so this, this little bump out of the house here as it's proposed will represent a slight expansion in the footprint of the house. The remainder of the deck that is not demolished uh, for the addition will be essentially just replaced in kind in the, in the same location, slightly smaller to allow for that extended uh, rear side of the house. And I do wanna note, uh, this is a little photo of, of the back of the house here. I do want to note that all this work is within uh, existing impervious area. So the, the expanded footprint of the house really only comes out a couple of extra feet in this direction and a couple extra feet in this direction. So what we end up with, here's a little architect's rendering. Uh, you, have, you have this section of the house here, which is the addition. 
the deck remains mostly the same, a little smaller. This section of the house ends up being a little bit bigger, uh, both towards the viewer and to the viewer's left here. Um, so essentially what we're looking at is a slight, uh, sorry, a small addition to the house. We're on the, the outskirts of the buffer zone and we are not impacting that 25 foot no disturb. Uh, we are also providing uh, erosion control barriers along the fence down here. The property is fenced on both sides. So what we did was we provided that just kind of along the base of the fence here, right along the property line. Um, and I think that that about does it for my spiel. I'm happy to answer any questions the commission may have. Now, when were the wetlands uh, flagged? Uh, I forget the exact date, but I believe it was the, about the beginning of September. All right. And, and who did the flagging? I did. Okay. Um, and uh, what is the net increase? I, I know you. I, I heard what you said about the currently existing impervious mm -hmm. patio, but what's the net increase of impervious surface? Uh, there, there is no increase in impervious surface. This is entirely over existing patio area. The expansion of the house, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe it's less than 200 square feet. All right. Um, and what about roof drains? Where are they going? Uh, I don't believe that roof drains are shown on the civil plan here, but uh, they may be shown on the architectural plan. I believe we also have Rob Hannigan in here who did the civil plans. I don't know if uh, Rob wants to unmute and speak to that possibly. I'm not uh, sure. I'm not sure where the roof drains are. I, I the addition is in, in the existing impervious area and I uh, really can't conceive of the reason for the request of uh, roof drains. Well, I just want to know, you know, if, if there's water there, is there any kind of a need for, uh, uh, you know, some kind of a, a drainage system? That, that's not a big expense item, and it's not tricky from an engineering point of view. It just sometimes makes sense to avoid that. erosion to put in some kind of a, you know, no, a small contact chamber. No, there's no need. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a look, all right? I so I'm assuming that the plans well, are going to show exactly what the net increase is, whether it's 200 or plus or minus. We want to know what the net increase is in impervious surface. And we'll put this on for site walk on Saturday. Absolutely. I will uh, I will pull that number for you. I don't have it off the top of my head, unfortunately. Got it. Any questions from commissioners? I would say that I did review the report. It was very complete and well done, I thought. Uh, I had a question about the soils. Uh, Mr. Frateroli, did you agree that the soils were uh, urban Eudorthens, I think they were called? They were. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, this area, um, as I understand it from some of my conversations and looking at the USGS map of the area, uh, this was a former gravel pit or quarry of some sort. So, the the soils in the area are a little bit unnatural as you would expect with the with a new dorthens uh soil unit like the nrcs has mapped in the area they, they tend to be you know gravelly and sandy and not particularly loamy um i gotcha i was curious about that thank you yeah absolutely 
All right, so it looks like any other commissioners, uh, the butters, members of the public? And with the assent of the applicant, we'll continue this until Saturday, uh, the 14th, and it's probably gonna be about, um, I don't think the other one's gonna take long, so it's probably gonna be about nine, a little after nine o'clock. Sounds good. I will, uh, I will be there and I will double check with the homeowners just to make sure that that's all okay. Oh, perfect. Good. Thank you. If it's not, uh, contact uh, Philip Driscoll, okay? Will do. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, folks. Have a good night. Good night. Um, uh, next on the uh, agenda is 999 Randolph Avenue. Kelly, is that you? It is me. Hi. Hi. Good evening. Um, my name is Kelly Durfee Cardoza. I'm with Avalon Consulting Group. And I'm here tonight to represent Wollaston Golf Club. I have with me Jim Burke with DeSell Burke Sala and um, also Charles uh, Grandin, who's the general manager at Wollaston. Um, prior, prior to the hearing today, I sent over copies of the abutter certificates of mailing and the copy of the public notice that was uh, published in the Patriot Ledger. And um, you'll note that there was also a public notice made in the Environmental Monitor on September 25th. Um, and um, DEP received a copy of the filing and we got a file number today. Um, so as most of the commission members know, Wollaston has had a permit since about 1998 to treat the ponds on the property for aquatic nuisance uh, vegetation. The last time we came before this commission, which was in 2022, we heard that um, you'd like the club to investigate some alternative non-pesticide based methods for managing the ponds. And um, this notice of intent it's filed as an ecological restoration project um, under both the Wetlands Protection Act and the Milton Wetlands Bylaw will supplement the ongoing management project uh, program. So what we have now is monitoring and pesticide application. And so what we're proposing is mechanical removal of vegetation using um, a hydro rake over a three year period. Um, it will remove rooted vegetation and organic material from the pond and um, should be just another tool, if you will, that will allow them to keep um, desirable water quality at the pond. Um, also what we're proposing to do is take this vegetation when it comes out of the pond and transport it across the entrance driveway to an upland area and use it as compost, cut it with sand, and then reuse it on the golf course um, for future use by the golf course management team. So Mr. Chairman, if I can share my screen, Oh, that'd be great. Okay, we'll give you a site plan here. Okay, so are you seeing the site plan? Yes, we can see it, Kelly. So for orientation, Randolph Avenue is about here. This is the driveway that comes in into the um, golf course. Here it crosses, <clears throat> excuse me, over the bridge, and this is up the hill to the golf course. Russell Pond is here. On the right-hand side of this plan, it's on the easterly side of the golf course. Um, it's about 10 acres in size. Um, it's fed from Route 28 in this area. And then the discharge is from a, a dam and culvert at this location through an intermittent stream here. Um, the proposed hydro raking uh, project has been designed to complement the ongoing management. and it should be able to remove the 
um, water lily population that's here without pesticides. Right now we're doing that with Amazimov, which was approved. Um, the plan would be to work first in year one in this zone, year two in this zone, and year three in this zone. And we think that after that time period, there should be good multi-year control, at least one to three years um, of the water lily. So we won't have um, increased shading. We won't have a, a decrease in oxygen in the pond after this work happens. Um, let me just show you a picture of what a hydro rig looks like. This is a, a hydro rake. The work will be done by Solitude, who I don't remember how many of you were on the commission at the time, but, but the pond on the sixth hole was hydro raked by Solitude at Wollaston many years ago. And it was very successful for a very long period of time. This is um, essentially a barge mounted backhoe with uh, rake attachments on the front. Um, it has a paddle wheel, so it can work in shallow water and um, the arm will allow it to reach to about 10 feet deep. Uh, and what we're proposing to do is um, take the material that looks something like this, it's um, organic biomass and roots, uh, and hopefully the rhizomes of the water lily, and um, transport those into uh, dump trailers that will be hauled by tractors. So let me go back to that site plan. And you're gonna see on, uh, on this plan right here that there are a series of orange pathways for these tractors to go. And we've designated two offload areas um, approximately at each of these locations. And so the hydro rake would be launched here. Um, it would do its work around here. And then what we would have in these boxes is we would lay, lay plywood down um, there'd be erosion control around those areas and along this plywood path uh, until we get outside the jurisdiction of the Conservation Commission. They'd go up onto the um, asphalt here along this area, across a cart path here, and then up to this area, well outside your jurisdiction. But I thought it was useful for you to understand how this process is going to work. And we would do this for three years. This would be the first one the second one and the third one. And the estimated is, uh, estimate is that about uh, one to two weeks, they would use either one hydro rake or two hydro rakes, depending on schedule and timing. Um, and we expect it'd be about 400 cubic yards of vegetation removed uh, when it's wet. And then after it goes up into this compost area and dries out, it's about 200 cubic yards of material. And as I said, it will be cut with sand at that location. So we're proposing um, two different kinds of erosion control to make sure that we don't um, damage uh, the turf in these areas or um, ha have anything go back into the pond. Uh, in these areas, uh, and erosion control typical, there are 12 inch mulch wattles that would be placed. And uh, at this location here, which is the outfall for the pond, um, there would be a turbidity curtain. So the erosion control, the plywood, and the turbidity curtain would be laid down each time and then removed immediately after the work is completed. The goal would be to do the work um, in the winter when the ground is 
frozen, but the pond is not frozen, so that we do the least amount of damage to the turf. Um, and we are able to get in and out. Uh, during that time, typically the pond discharge is fairly low. If we need to slow down the water that's leaving, we would do that with sandbags. Um, and um, we think that it will take, again, one to two weeks each event. Kind of the um, unusual thing here is that we're asking you for a um, an order that would be up to five years. Because if we know it's gonna take three years to do that, and if we get the order now, and we start the work in February, um, so this would be February of 24, February of 25, February of 26, by the time we get to that point, our order won't be any good. And we know this ahead of time. So we'd like you to, to grant that for, um, for five years so that they have the time to do this. Um, as required in the regulations, we did an alternatives analysis. It was based on the uh, Massachusetts DCR documentation, general um, a generic environmental impact report and the lake and pond management documentation. Um, and, and we think that this, is a, that this is a good supplement to what we have now. Um, by using the uh, clear cast or Amazimov to treat the water lily in the year before the work is done, that will loosen the rhizomes, enable them to be pulled out um, uh, more easily during the hydro raking process. And um, the guess is, is there'll be very little uh, of this particular pesticide needed over time for, no one can really tell, it depends on how much comes out, but one to three years is a conservative estimate. One of the um, people that I spoke with said, we might go as much as five to 10 years. Um, so I think it's a beneficial approach. It's not an, uh, it's not an inexpensive approach. Um, but it will certainly help the uh, the health of the of the pond over time. So if um, you want a five year order, uh -huh. uh, would you include uh, within that? Uh, would it be acceptable to get reports on an annual basis as to uh, progress being made and uh, efficacy of this technique? Absolutely. So what your order, um, what the order for aquatic nuisance vegetation management for this pond does now is it requires an annual report. So um, they're working on that, you know, finishing out this year, and you'll get your first annual report uh, sometime, I would presume, in, in the January timeframe. And we would just add this into that. So there would be an annual report ongoing. So I think you'd be able to see the difference in um, in management over time, even after this hydro raking piece is done, because you're going to get those annual reports. Okay, um, I I have experience with um, uh, the, the golf club in hydro raking in one of the other smaller ponds uh, some years ago, um, but I know one of the concerns that was expressed at that time is the equipment being utilized. Can you kind of walk us through? how the design of the hydro raking machine um, will protect the, the water resource. And I'm particularly concerned with hydraulic uh, lines, um, the operation of the shovel. 
Sure. So the hydraulic fluid that's used is biodegradable. It's not a petroleum base um, because it's meant to operate primarily in the, in the water. Um, the it moves very slowly. So there, if there are fish and other aquatic life, they'll kind of get out of the way during this process. Um, so we don't anticipate there'll be um, injuries in in that way. Um, the uh, the uh, equipment is launched on a flatbed trailer that would um, uh, allow it to be uh, brought right up to the edge of the water. Um, they put plywood, uh, they have plywood and plastic mats and they would use them al alternatively and they put it right down to make sure that there's no damage to the bank as the equipment is being launched in. It's about a 15 minute process and then those plastic mats would be picked up. Um, then it, the hydro rake stays in the water. Um, fueling is done very carefully. Um, there's only one company uh, right now that has these hydro rakes and it's Solitude. They've done this work for many, many years. They're the ones who did it at Wollaston before. They're based, they're a national company now, but they're based out of Shrewsbury. And um, this, is, this is what they do every single day. All right, thank you, Kelly. Commission members, questions? I'd just like to remark that um, I prefer this approach to herbicides and I'm glad it's being explored. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Wendy? Mr. Chairman? Yes, um, Arthur. I would just add that our conservation agents, B-Vibus, and I um, walked uh, about a third of the perimeter of Russell Pond. And um, excuse me for this. Within the last week, um, last Saturday, following last Saturday's conservation site walk, and I'm in agreement with uh, Tom's comment that this would be a preferred application. Uh, there's no question about the need for uh, the removal of the vegetation. It was very visible uh, from the edge of the uh, bank. And um, my sense is that uh, that was the opinion of a conservation agent as well. Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, and um, Ingrid is not here and I would never think to speak for her, but I, I know she's very interested in the, the use of chemicals and very sensitive to that. So I'm I'm guessing that any reduction in the use of chemicals is a good thing in her mind. Wendy, do you do you have any thoughts on that? Um yes, I just I just wanted to um to thank you, Kelly, for for listening to our request when you were before us a year ago and for um, proposing this mechanical alternative. I'm very excited about it. All right. Are there any special, this is a, a notice of intent. Uh, are there any special conditions that people have concern with? I think Kelly, you walked us through the, the, the pathways to the edge uh, and uh, taking it out of our jurisdiction that, that is taking the spoils out of our jurisdiction for uh, disposition there. Uh, are there any other special conditions that anybody has in mind? Hans, anything in, in your in, yeah, that you no, want I think to that the standard concern? conditions you put forward about refueling or Anything else, you know, anything done outside or maintenance being done outside the, the buffer zone is appropriate. 
Okay. And Kelly, you're aware that those are our usual customary boilerplate, if you will, uh, conditions that no storage overnight of um, equipment and no refueling within our jurisdiction. So your wish would then be that the hydro rake is removed from the pond and taken outside your jurisdiction for fueling? For fueling, yes. Okay. I, I mean, it's 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 a process to get it in, out over the bank, but but if that's if that's your wish, um, then then that's what we'll do. Um, they typically would fuel it uh, in place. Uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, that that would be against our usual, as I said, boilerplate condition. Um, the only question I have, Mr. Chairman, on that is, um, I think Kelly said that the fuel supply is different from the traditional fuel supply. Is that right? The hydraulic, no, that's not, that's... The hydraulic fuel is biodegradable. On, okay. on equipment like this, that tends to be what leaks. A hydraulic line goes. Um, right. So I understand that. I'm with you. So my suggestion would be, well, so regardless of, of whether the hydraulic fluid is, is biodegradable or not, a, a, a release of hydraulic fluid is still a release. Um, let's be clear about that. Um, secondly, um, if, if there is, if it's infeasible to, um, to refuel outside the buffer zone, then I think at a minimum, we should require having a spill kit on site and um, some sort of, you know, secondary control or, you know, I've seen other construction sites or or during activities where the any fuel is stored in in a tub or some kind of containment to make sure that it just that that any transfer of fuels is is controlled and that there's protection for any inadvertent um, spillage. So we typically use a kid's pool. I know it, yeah. it seems a little odd, but it it works great as a containment location just, for storage. That's a funny industry practice. So that's, you know, that's I've, not the first you know, time I've heard that. But yes, but, the yeah, but, kit and those provisions would be would be acceptable. But Hans, are you talking about pulling it out of the pond for refueling and putting it on the bank? Um, ideally, it would be on the bank. But, you know, if that's infeasible because of, you know, just logistics, then we would need, you know, whatever protections in place in order to ensure that you know, any fuel that's that's transferred goes from the place where it is to where it's supposed to be, and that in between those two places, it doesn't end up where it's not supposed to be. Well, Kelly, would it would it be? Um, I mean, in my mind, if there's a spill of of anything, it would be better off on land than rather in the pond. Uh, is it feasible to take it out of the pond to refuel? even if you don't take it out of our jurisdiction? Um, yes. I mean, if that if that's your, if that's what needs to be done, then that's what will be done. Well, that it, would certainly be it, my, my preference, you know, along with uh, the safety precautions of a spill kit. And uh, and I've, I've used in the cases that I've had, the, the kiddie pools, it's, it's very common practice and it, it actually works. Um, that would certainly be my preference, but I want to make sure that it's doable. Any thoughts, you know, Wendy, Arthur, 
time. That would be my preference as well. Okay. I think because okay. of the magnitude of this project, that that would be advisable. Good. All right. In this duration. Then we can add that as a uh, special condition. Um, I'm also uh, assuming, Kelly, that any of the transporting trucks they would be that might be stored on site would be stored up in the yard and out of the jurisdiction. They will be. They're they're tractors that are owned by the the club um, or, or or rented for this purpose and a dump trailer. So they would be stored outside your jurisdiction at, at maintenance um, and refueled outside your jurisdiction at maintenance. Thank you. Sounds good. Yeah, it sounds like we've got the makings of a of a motion uh, with those conditions. Um, are there any other? Comments from commissioners? Are there any abutters or members of the public that would like to ask a question or make a comment? I don't see any hands raised, but I can't see, because we're sharing the screen, I can't see other people. Does anybody oh, see I, any hands raised? Let me stop sharing, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, that would be helpful. Okay, so I, I still don't see any hands raised. All right, so is there a, a, a motion to approve an order of conditions with the special conditions that we have discussed. So I move, Mr. Chairman. All right, thank you, Arthur. Is there a second? I'll second. All right, thanks, Hans. Any discussion among the commission members? Hearing none, seeing none, uh, I'll take a, a voice vote. And um, Hans, how do you vote? Yes. Arthur, how do you vote? Yes. Wendy? Yes. Tom? You might be on mute, Tom. Yes. All right, good, thank you. Um, and I vote uh, yes as well, John Kiernan. I think I get everybody. Um, all right, fair enough. You've got your order of conditions with those special conditions. And, and uh, Philip, I'll, I'll work with you uh, tomorrow on you know, trying to make sure that we get these conditions down on paper. Perfect. <clears throat> All right. Thank you very much. Kelly, thank you as always. Uh, good job. Thank you and have a good night. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Kelly. All right. Number five and number six. Uh, next on our agenda, they'll, they'll uh, go together. Uh, notice of intent, 25 Guile Road, Lower Guile Field, continued hearing. And number six, informational, 25 Guile uh, Road, Grass for Guile, continued hearing. Uh, this is one in which uh, uh, we've, it's been on our agenda for a number of months now. And uh, we finally get our contract signed with Tetra Tech. Uh, they did respond as, as others uh, were given the opportunity to respond and they did respond to our uh, request for a proposal with a scope of work. And we had actually uh, 10 items uh, of concern to the commission. Um, and we did receive uh, recently from uh, Sean Redden, I see you there and I don't know. I, I can't see Ron Myrick, but I think he's there as well. Um, and and I did distribute that to as many people as I as I could think of. Um, I tried Paul, uh, and I think he finally received it. Uh, I had a couple of bounce backs. Deborah uh, Milbauer, I tried to get it out to you. I, I tried to get it out to as many people that I knew were stakeholders or interested parties. Uh, but, but in any event, 
Sean, uh, you or Ron, could you kind of walk us through uh, what you did and what uh, the scope of work was and what your response was? Sure. So just for introductions, I'm Sean Reardon, um, Vice President with Tetra Tech, focusing mostly on civil infrastructure and hydrology. Um, Ron Myrick is also here with me. He's also a Vice President of Tetra Tech. He's, he's our PFAS guy and he's an LSP in Massachusetts as well as a, a professional engineer. So um, the two of us have pretty much all the areas covered. I think I think most of the questions fall in Ron's sort of um, skill set, but I'll I'll do a quick little summary of of what we provided to the board. Um, as as you mentioned, Chairman, you, we were asked ten questions. Those four, those questions sort of consolidated into about four basic areas. Um, one being is is does the field system um, represent a risk of PFAS contamination? Two is, will the turf system and sort of the elevated temperatures you see on artificial turf systems, will that manifest itself as an elevated temperature in Pine Tree Brook? Um, third one was, you know, are there some disposal or what are the disposal options for this turf system when it eventually reaches the end of its usable life? And then, you know, are, are there any sort of PFAS limits that are recognized that you should be aware of and, and, and how do they relate to this project? So we, um, we issued a letter on the on the fourth that um, addressed each of the ten questions we were asked. Um, I don't think they were a reach for either Ron or I. I think we're we're, we're both pretty confident in our responses. Um, but if we, I'll just real quickly just go through what we found as it relates to the four basic questions. One is there a risk of PFAS? Um, our experience is that th there's very little, if any, PFAS in these turf systems. And if there is PFAS found, it's usually at below detection limits or near below detection detection limits, and um, it's usually it's usually attributable to more environmental conditions that just find their way into the manufacturing products because PFAS is sort of ubiquitous in the environment. It's in the air. It's in the ground. So it's it's all around us. So to see it in in, in products at trace amounts is 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 not um, to be uh, it's not unexpected. Um, as far as temperature impacts to Pine Tree Brook, um, fortunately, we're relatively speaking, we're, we're several hundred feet from Pine Tree Brook. So any sort of periodic increase in temperature at the turf surface, we, we wouldn't expect that temperature change to manifest itself at, at Pine Tree Brook, principally because it's so far away, it has to go through pipes and underground drainage systems. You know, temperatures on the turf surface usually, you know, are, are worse when it's bright and sunny out. So you're usually not expecting too much rainfall then. If it does rain, usually the turf system cools down pretty quickly. So we wouldn't expect any temperature impacts at Pine Tree Brook from the turf system. Um, disposal options, yeah, unfortunately, pretty much it's, it's solid waste right now. Um, there are some sort of outfits that take like high-end turf products that are not usable for high-end applications like say, you know, Gillette Stadium. You know, they get rid of their turf a lot sooner than most municipalities do. So sometimes that gets repurposed in other applications. Um, no real recycling options right now, or but that, who knows that could change. Um, but it's all speculation at this point. I would su suggest you consider it a solid waste. It's going to get put in a landfill somewhere. Um, and there's a, it, can I interrupt? There's a, I presume yeah. there's a cost for that if it goes to a licensed uh, site disposal facility. Well, I would just go to a, to a landfill as solid waste, just like you know normal trash does. Understood. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna definitely pay a, a transport fee or a, or a disposal fee. I mean, certainly, you know, 
I don't know what the town of Milton does for um, solid waste, but you know, someone's it's got to go somewhere and someone's going to charge you for it. All right. But it's, it's not a hazardous waste disposal. Correct. Got it. Okay. Thanks. And then the last, the last question was about sort of levels DEP mass DEP does have reporting levels for um, PFAS in soil and in groundwater. Um, so those are, are, are rel relative standards that, that you want to be aware of. And then um, the EPA is, is developing standards for um, or limits for PFAS in drinking water. So th those are the three most applicable things. Probably the soil one's the most applicable because you have, you did the, the project did some sampling out there that which, which found PFAS in the soil, but it, all those numbers, Ron, correct me if I'm wrong, but all, all those were below reportable concentrations. So um, you don't have any, any actionable condition there. We've heard some talk about changes coming, uh, both at the EPA and DEP uh, levels in terms of what would be the uh, maximum contaminant load. Are those numbers changing? And if so, can you predict uh, the approximate values where they're going to be. I say approximate because I've asked you to predict. It hasn't arrived yet, but uh, I believe that there is some public comment on suggested changes. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that if your analysis is leading to a conclusion of X, uh, you know, October, is it going to change if we get to January? I'll let Ron talk, speak to that one. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Chair, what's happening right now is is the federal government is looking at what Massachusetts engaged on about four or five years ago. They're looking at maximum contaminant level for drinking water. In, uh, in Massachusetts, we have a limit of the sum of six particular PFAS compounds. There's thousands of PFAS compounds, but there's six they're concerned about. And that number is 20 parts per trillion. EPA is looking at it a little differently. They're looking at a few different compounds at about four, five, and some much higher than that. So depending on the ones you're looking at, you may be above 20 or below 20. For this project, it doesn't have relevance. Yeah, it doesn't it won't change, have relevance. It won't change the analysis that we're doing or the overall impact on the project. If you know relative to PFAS, well, one reason is because we don't see PFAS in this turf system. But um, with regard to say the soils having some residual PFAS uh, related to atmospheric deposition or other things, uh, the soils are regulated, and we don't see that number changing in Massachusetts anytime soon. Um, can I take you back something you just said that the the numbers uh, the current numbers are projected changed numbers uh, is that's for drinking water as opposed to to what uh, dermal exposure so right now it's it's a consumption issue it's an ingestion issue it's not a contaminant that you worry about touching okay so what what Massachusetts is looking at, is consumption and EPA is following their, their, their path. And they're also looking at consumption. And I think that we'll land somewhere between 10 and 20 parts per trillion in a few months for everybody in the country, somewhere in that range, but it'll get very complicated if I go through all the variations of how this could turn out, but we're not gonna see a significant change, but it's gonna go na nationwide instead of just being Massachusetts. All right. Well, you, 
using that as your standard of reference, can you go back and give us two numbers? And it may be plural, not just a number, but we understand that there's uh, a PFAV concentration in the soils currently on site. Is that true? There is a concentration uh, a less than one part per billion is in the soil that are being that are regulated PFAS, less than one part per billion. The standard by which you need to report that to Mass DEP and do something about that is above that number. And some for some of the compounds, way above that number. For some that some of the compounds, not much more than that number. But how the standards were developed, without getting too far into this, was Mass DEP didn't have a real good way to do this. So they did a Vermont did a survey of what they saw in all their soils all over Vermont. And they took the 90th percentile for some of these compounds and said, all right, let's just use this. What they want to do is see if there's a trigger that makes you need to go in and look for a PFAS issue. So that's how they came up with their most stringent sample. If you're in a commercial industrial area, that number is much higher. But if you're in a residential area, they want you at least to look at this issue as being a potential source related to firefighting foams or something like that. All right, and, and it, in the Lower Guile Road field area, how do those numbers compare? Uh, the, the level of concern versus what was found in the soil? Similar to background around Massachusetts and Vermont. There's since been a study in Massachusetts and you'd see numbers like that anywhere in Massachusetts. But, but Ron, they're below, they're, they're well below they're the below. reporting concentrations. They're for below the, correct, they're below the reporting concentration but they're similar to what you would see in most people's backyards or uh, anywhere around the, the state. All right, now, same set of questions, but, but go to the, uh, the component parts of the TRIF system. You know, what, what do they show? And when I say the system, I'm talking about the matting on top, I'm talking about the, the bedding beneath and, and the adhesives used to keep everything together. I think the the chart that was submitted by the proponent shows that pretty well. The, the detected concentrations were much lower than the soil, and in some cases, not detected at all. All right, and it kind of a, a side issue, but in order to put the bedding underneath the mat, does the does the turf field system require that that soil be removed? Yes. Yeah. So the top soil, the top soil on top of the current field would get taken out to expose the subsoil. Then a granular material would be put on top, and then the turf system would be put on top of that. Understood. It doesn't mean that that soil needs to leave the site, though. That that soil could be reused somewhere else. All right. So that's because it's be below the reportable level. That that's not considered. Currently contaminated soil, is that correct? Correct. All right. Um, I, I, I know there are uh, a number of concerns that have been expressed, and I actually went back over some of the uh, written materials that were submitted. And I, I go back to one that came in from Neponset, uh, uh, and this might be a Chris Huntress question. Um, but the one of the original concerns is we're not exactly sure which product is being 
suggested or or used. Chris, am I correct that that product has actually been identified? It has. We're we're suggesting and recommending uh, a product made by Tenkati. It's uh, Greenfield's turf. It's the product that was that the original tests were run on, so we know exactly what's in them. Uh, that's the carpet itself, uh, the synthetic turf. The infill is a organic product made by Brock, um, and this was all in our original presentation to the Conservation Commission. And then uh, underneath the turf would go a resilient shock pad uh, for safety and for uh, shock attenuation, and that's also made by Brock. And is that the 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 substance that's actually pine or some kind of wood? That's the infill material that goes into the synthetic turf fibers on top. Yes. All right. And uh, let me shift back to Sean or Ron. Um, have the chemical components, if that's the right word, of the wood been considered? What I'm asking really, is there a preservative in the wood component parts of this uh, bedding or shock pad? We looked at the website. We looked at the safety data sheet. They identified it as organic without additives. That's that's the best we can go by is the product literature. The analysis that was done on a on a different project did not find uh, concerning contaminants in that product in the in the Brock fill. Understood. And now again, going back to uh, the last couple of meetings, there have been some concerns expressed about, um, well, two, two areas. One is that if the water coming off the, the, the field, when I say off, I know it's pervious, it's going to drain through into these rib drains that we've seen the design for. The water is going to be collected and then uh, connected to uh, an existing drainage system that basically dumps it right into Pine Tree Brook. So we had some concerns and some of the, the neighbors and uh, citizens have indicated, well, wait a minute, is the water too hot? And one of the suggestions that came up was, well, can we slow it down? Can we put it in some kind of a detention chamber and let it cool off? So that's one, and again, I'm accumulating a lot of concerns that were expressed into two areas. One was the temperature, the other one was, if there were to be any kind of increase in a contaminant load, is there any way to filter it out? Um, and I and I know I heard what you just said that there is no increase in the contaminant load, uh, or there's no contaminant load. I heard that, but if there were, is there a way to filter that out uh, without having some kind of giant, uh, you know, water system filtration system? Well, I'll I'll answer the there's a little overlap in the two in the two questions in terms of how you, you deal with them. So from a from a heat standpoint, again, we wouldn't expect there to be a, a noticeable change in temperature as a function of the turf system at Pine Tree Brook in any in any case. However, you know, you have you have a natural buffer zone right there, which is the wetland between Pine Tree Brook and in the turf system. We would prefer to see rather than sort of having the discharge from the turf system sort of take the express lane, which is you're just putting it into the drainage system. We'd suggest you discharge that that trench, the, the um, channel drain from the turf system to the wetland just, just on the other side of the field so that you know, the, the wetland can do what it does perfectly, which is filter contaminants and allow any sort of changes in the, in the water quality to get 
treated before it gets to Pine Tree Brook. So, you know, it has to go through a long wetland before it gets to Pine Tree Brook. So by the time it ever got to Pine Tree Brook, anything would have been filtered out. Um, it, it could provide that wetland could provide the same function, you know, the same sort of valuable buffer zone between any potential contaminant source and Pine Tree Brook. So routing any stormwater discharge through the wetland prior to getting to Pine Tree Brook is only going to help the quality of Pine Tree Brook. As far as other contaminants, Ron, you can speak to this, but I mean, you'd have to sort of know what the contaminants of concern are because there's different treatment systems for all, all sorts of different contaminants. But I think the, the wetland is a universally, you know, effective treatment system for anything. Right, Ron, anything to add to that in terms of the, the, the filtering mechanism? Actually, it's the function of the wetland. Well, I really don't. I think Sean covered it. I think to really dig into the details, we'd have to know what kind of contaminants we were concerned about. Um, we haven't found any from what is being proposed to be a particular concern. So, but but something something if that we could review if there were, there were contaminants that were identified. All right. Well, you know, some people have raised the issue of, you know, they think that there's going to be a some kind of a uh, a micro shedding uh, of plastic components, and that would include PFAS. So that that's really what we're talking about. That's sort of the elephant in the room. Um, Again, John, we found there's, there's really no PFAS in the system. So so we, anything that micro sheds off of the system wouldn't have any PFAS in it either. Certainly, we can't really speak to the sort of how the system decomposes or breaks down. But you know, if if there's no PFAS in the system, there wouldn't be any PFAS in anything that came off. Understood. All right. Well, you know, thank you for uh, turning it around uh, so quickly for us. And I, I, I know that the, you kind of consolidated some of the 10 points in the uh, request for proposal in, into your report that has been made public. And I think most people have had at least a preliminary opportunity to review. But let me ask uh, uh, commission members if they have any questions for you. Um, uh, or thoughts to share. Hey, John, just before we move that, just, just for clarification, our letter does address each of the 10 questions. So we responded exactly the way, the way they were requested. I just cons consolidated them for the purpose of the, the meeting tonight. Right, and that's, I, you stated that more articulately than I, I agree with you, <laughs> I agree. You did address all 10 uh, topics that we had uh, requested. Hans, any thoughts or concerns or questions? Or questions? Um, I, I don't. Um, it's uh, in terms of the the stormwater discharge. You know, having the the existing discharge go directly into the existing system, um, probably preferred. Preferred. Um, I don't know if who's in the hearing, but yeah. Yeah, Ron, it might be yours. Yeah, um, yeah, because you were echoing there, uh, Hans. Could you say that again? I I didn't get most of what you said. So I I think that the concern about having the the uh, drainage system connect into the existing system has always been sort of a concern all along. Um, and I think if there's potential for for additional detention from so that it just doesn't go into a straight pipe into the uh into the brook i think that's appropriate 
Um, I know that it's a space constrained site, so it's going to be somewhat challenging to do that. Um, but uh, I, I do agree with that recommendation. Thanks. Tom, Tom Palmer, any thoughts, questions, concerns? Uh, there's still things that I have questions about. I don't really need to have them answered now, just to let you know. Uh, for instance, the question of shedding of plastics, we heard that the plastics evidently don't weren't manufactured with PFAS in the components. On the other hand, simply the plastic itself breaking up into small pieces and going into the wetlands is a kind of pollution. I don't really think we have heard how this stuff will deteriorate. On, in that vein, I did look at the product description from Brock Phil, I guess. All it said about the infill or the padding, the loose stuff that will absorb impact is that it's loblolly pine. Um, I don't see how that won't start to rot as soon as it's wetted and it will be wetted when it rains. I certainly, I've seen what happens to fiberboard and pine lumber that isn't treated. It disappears very rapidly. So that's another concern of mine. I, I don't really understand how it can work without rotting immediately. Another question I have is uh, we have to protect the wetlands. That's our responsibility. And I think um, because this project abuts wetlands directly, you have to ask how do water, how does the water get into those wetlands and how will the project change that? If the water that currently supplies those wetlands is diverted elsewhere, well, that's an adverse impact. That dries up the wetlands. That's what we're supposed to prevent. Um, on this question of temperature, it's hard for me to imagine that water won't get heated up going through this plastic material that gets very hot. It just seems it will get heated up and the only way it will get cooled off is if places it goes absorbs the heat. Uh, I think if you run it through a pipe, I don't really know that it will cool off by going through a pipe. I would say that we could find that out more accurately uh, simply by observing what happens to water that falls on the existing plastic fields. Uh, we don't know that. We could go to the drain from those fields after a storm and take the temperature of the water. That would be more convincing to me than anything I've heard so far as to whether the water will be hot coming off the fields. So those are three areas that to me seem to still need to be cleared up in my own mind. And uh, that's my comment. All right, thanks Tom. But can I ask you the, the three that I, I just took notes on the, the, the wood rotting yeah. Unless, unless it's got some preservative added. Uh, I got that. The second one, though, I, I got lost because you said if the water is diverted away from the wetlands, 
Well, that's what the system plan suggests. It's you remember that a hearing bone pattern of drains. Yes. And uh, there's two pipes that go straight to the brook on either side of the field, and those drains were to intended to connect with those pipes. And in the first hearing on this issue, I showed a picture of one of those head walls running, um, even in dry weather. And Mr. Huntress said, well, it's probably connected to groundwater, which is, I think he was correct about that. At any rate, that is a pathway for the rain that lands on the field to go to the wetland. It will go through a pipe to the brook. And hence, is that what it's doing now? I don't think so. I think somehow it's getting to the wetlands rather than to the brook, either as groundwater or runoff. So there's a little starvation effect. It, it, it is, Tom. And, and I think yeah. your third point was that the, the, the water's not going to cool off if it goes into the pipe. But I, but I think you're talking about, uh, and maybe this should go to um, Chris Huntress, but you're talking about the original design. The recommendation, as I understood it from Sean Reardon and Ron Myrick, was to redirect it rather than putting it into that existing drainage pipe and dumping it into the brook, was to redirect it into the wetlands. Yeah, well, I agree that that might help to address that issue. But of course, we haven't seen any plan uh, incorporating that idea. So I, I'm I agree. Sure. I agree. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that you were talking about the the currently existing design that the applicant has filed with us, as opposed to the recommendations by Tetra Tech. Uh, right. Okay. Understood completely. Thanks, Don. Wendy, any thoughts, questions, concerns? Yes, thank you, John. Um, my my uh, remaining concerns um, really focus on the the debris of the breakdown of the turf, um, and perhaps this is a question for Mr. Huntress. Um, I I recall several months several months ago at one of our earlier hearings that you had said um, that there would be. Um, an ongoing need um, requirement for the uh, for the town to routinely um, vacuum, I guess was the word, the uh, the fields um, to remove the debris. And my concern is um, if if the town is not able to to do that routine maintenance, what what would happen to to that debris? Mr. Chairman, would you like me to answer the Yes, please, that? please, Chris, thank you. Um, excellent question, Wendy. Um, and Tom, I've got some answers for you as well, but um, it wasn't vacuuming. It's, it's really sweeping and grooming. The infill gets displaced as athletes play on the surface, particularly in the goal mouth areas and other areas of, of heavy foot action. So there's a sweeping process that occurs where the, where the infill is, the, well, there's a brush that's dragged behind, say, a John Deere tractor or another type of you know, maintenance vehicle, and it would redistribute that infill into the lower areas. The things that are picked up off the field 
you know, that broom will have a magnet that goes along behind it. So things like bobby pins or cleats or other things that come off of, you know, players as they're on the field that might be metal would be picked up that way. Um, and then any other debris would be picked up kind of through that sweeping process because the, the infill gets kind of turned over and anything that's, you know, larger than the infill gets gets swept up into a, into a, um, a sieve, if you will, and then and then filtered, you know, the, the infill is filtered back into the surface and the larger components are are taken away. So that cleaning process is really just a sweeping and grooming process. If the town isn't capable of doing that or, or doesn't have the resources to do it, they can outsource that. And we typically recommend our clients um, have a two-year maintenance agreement with the manufacturer that puts the turf in so that they can teach them how to maintain the system and do it for them for the first two years. But certainly that maintenance system or maintenance contract can be extended beyond the two years. There's, there's no reason that it that it couldn't be. Did that answer your question? Well, sort of. It it leads me to a few more questions, clarifying yeah. questions. You, when you when you speak of sweeping, and it, it makes it sound so easy, like you know, sweeping my kitchen floor. But I'm I'm guessing that um, it's it's rather labor intensive. If this is something that you're suggesting that the town have a two year maintenance agreement for, could you maybe explain like what the the process is? Is this something that that you know is is quick and easy, or is much more involved? No, it's it's actually not terribly difficult. Uh, it takes much less time to maintain a synthetic turf field than it does a natural grass field. So the equipment that comes along behind uh, a tractor would include a rotary brush, um, and then um, you know that sieve or or a hopper that that runs right behind the brush that filters out any of the bigger material. You've got your magnetic drag bars, well, picking up bobby pins and other things that come off. And then you've got um, a groomer, which gets a little bit deeper into the turf and kind of fluffs up, if you will, the infill, and that helps in the displacement. That whole process takes about two hours for somebody to go out with the equipment on the field and rake and groom the field to the point where it's uh, serviceable and playable again. So it's not incredibly labor intensive. And you're doing this once a month, once a month, you want to do it, you know, a second time that month before a, you know, a Friday night game or something, then, then go ahead. You can, you can do it, but you don't really need to do it more often than once a month. And again, if, if that grooming is not done, then what, what would, what would be the worst case scenario? What would happen to the debris? Well, the debris wouldn't get picked up uh, if it's on the field. The um, what would be more concerning for me would would not necessarily be the debris, say bobby pins and other things that are on the field, but more the goal mouth areas and the areas of heavy foot action where infill is dispersed and starts to get um, the infill would then be much thinner. We have about a two inch tall turf system, and about an inch and a half of that is filled with infill. Um, so if you start to lose that infill in certain places you're going to worry about uh compaction in those areas you're going to worry about um impact uh attenuation in those areas and, and injury to players so it's um you know it's it's that's what would concern me more than than the debris 
Thank you. You're saying that, just to be clear, um, you're saying that when when the turf fields are not maintained, there is a higher risk of impact injuries. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Correct. Um, if I could, I'd like to just um, touch on the drainage system a little bit because I think there's there's some misconception as to how this this site drains. We did provide a presentation, but admittedly, it was some time ago, um, probably last spring. Um, water does uh, migrate through this system, uh, percolates down um, uh, vertically into the subsurface soils or the, the subsurface drainage system. Um, but predominantly, most of this stormwater is handled through infiltration into the, into the groundwater below. And that's true for storm events up to about the 25-year event, and that's shown in our um, in our drainage calculations that we provided previously. So really, the drain lines that go off and would go to Pine Tree Brook would only see water during during significantly heavier storm events when the when the infiltration was not able to handle um, stormwater, you know, above that 25-year storm. <coughs> Excuse me. I did talk to our civil today who designed the drainage system and ran the calculations about potentially putting the outfall uh, along the edge that would um, be closest to the wetland system. There is room to do it there, and we could evenly disperse outfall along that entire edge of the field so that it would feed the wetland, as Tom had said, um, more appropriately. Again, most of that rainfall during most events would infiltrate into the ground and feed the, the wetland system through a groundwater process, but we can certainly put the outfalls along the edge of the the, um, the field as they're adjacent to that wetland system so that in a heavier event, the stormwater would get into the wetland system um, and not go directly into uh, Pine Tree Brook. So that's certainly possible to do and, and not difficult. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll turn it back to you, and I know you've got other commission members that may want to ask Thank questions. Yeah, Arthur? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to thank everybody for their uh, comments. My position is not to discharge directly into Pine Tree Brook. Um, a, fil a filtration system um, would be advisable from my point of view. The um, use of the wetland initially as a filtration system might be a very valuable study for us. Um, and if that is uh, successful, all well and good. If it is not, we could back into other recourses. Um, one other uh, thought is that the lower guard road field is in a floodplain. And I was curious as to whether or not Tetratech has any data or experience in the impact of, of flooding on uh, artificial turf. Yeah, but peripherally, um, not as a sort of uh, design consultant, but we, we've sort of seen evidence of sort of the older systems that have rubber infill and floodplains. If, if you have a flooding event, you know, some of that gets floated more from static conditions than from sort of buoyancy. Um, so. I mean, wood floats, so I, I would expect some of the material to be sort of floatable on the surface, but I would also expect a lot of it to be held in place by the turf system. Um, 
um, one thing just I, I didn't understand that the, the infiltration, the, the field infiltrates. So that's, that's an actually a, a great thing as far as the micro shedding is concerned, because if, if the field, if, if all of the storms underneath 25 year storm infiltrate through the, the soil, then any micro shedded plastic is going to, is going to get bound up in the soil directly below the system. So um, just to sort of add that on, but as far as the flooding goes, I would imagine a portion of the infill is buoyant. I don't think anything else would float, but you know, the infill might might make its way to the to the wetland in that situation. Thank you. Mr. Chair, I'm hopeful that I could just um, address the, the floodplain issue if I could. Yes, that would be helpful. So the 100-year flood elevation um, or the bordering land subject to flooding that's jurisdictional under both the Wetlands Act and your local bylaw is defined as the 35 foot contour elevation. And that is outside of our limit of work. It is it is really inboard, predominantly um, inboard of the wetland itself. Uh, so we are not impacting anything within the, the 100 foot. I did review the FEMA maps today just to double check that. There is an area called zone X, which is between the 100 to 500 year storm event that runs through about the middle of the field. That is um, again up to a what they call the 500-year storm, or the 0.2% chance um, that a storm event will get that large. That is not jurisdictional um, under either the Act or the local bylaws. So it's really the 100-foot. I'm sorry, not the 100-foot. The 100-year flood elevation is the 35, and that's well outside of our limit of work. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, thank you, Chris. You. Uh, Arthur, is that does that respond to your question? Um, it, it it does in part. I I just um, would like to see the maps. We did submit in the NOI. We've got the FEMA maps in there, and we gave a presentation on June twelfth, um, which specifically addressed the hundred year flood elevation. And um, you have a memo in the file from us dated March 29th that also goes through um, where the location of the 100 foot, I'm sorry, the 100 year flood elevation is. So uh, if you need help finding any of those documents, please let me know. I remember those references and I'll revisit them. Thank you. And I think this information will be helpful to others outside of the commission. Uh, right. Did I? Um, Hans, Tom, Wendy, Arthur, did I miss anybody, commission members? Um, uh, I, I did talk to Ingrid, and uh, she uh, was unable to attend uh, tonight, but uh, has great interest in the, you know, the chemical components of this. And uh, I, I, for one, I think we all value her insight into these. And and uh, she asked whether or not uh, I thought it would be continued. I know that uh, uh, there has been a request to continue the hearing further to give the, uh, some of the grass regile folks a, a, a better opportunity to respond to the Tetratech. Um, and I know that that uh, Ingrid would appreciate that because she wanted to be able to participate in the discussion. Um, and so uh, if there are no other questions from the um, commission members, I, I would open it up. And I, I know there are a number of different uh, 
you know, spokespersons, if if you will. And Paul, I I kind of, I always look to you as uh, probably the, um, the uh, leader of the pack, so to speak. Um, John, I didn't know if you wanted to make a make a comment or ask a question. And, John, and I thought you did on. ask for a continuance. Yeah, Hans. Yeah, before we go on, just I just want to confirm with Mr. Huntress about the the feasibility of of modifying the drainage, and and to utilize the wetland if that you know is that still under consideration or is that? Are you asking? Are you asking me? I'm I'm I guess I'm asking John to ask you. Oh no, Hans, you know, I'll be, you, you ask you. You're a commissioner. Ask ask sure. away. <laughs> You know, so you, you did say that there is there is space to to utilize the the uh, wetland for some of the overflow to prevent the drainage to go uh, directly to the brook. Is that correct? There there is room along that that edge of the field that addresses the the wetland to be able to put multiple outfall points so that we would evenly disperse that that water, if you will, as it would leave the system. Um, so yes, there's room. There's room to do that. We have no objection to doing it. Um, happy to make that change. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, and and as we are having discussion about potentially closing the hearing, I think we would like to see any design changes or updates, including any that we've discussed otherwise, um, including the one I request about the traffic control at the at the bottom of the. Uh, to, to prevent people from parking. Um, I'd like to see an updated plan before we try and close the hearing. So. We'd be happy to do this. We're just obviously getting this information. Sure. I like everybody else is. So um, we'll take some time to revise those plans and get them over. Okay. Thanks, John. That's all I had. Oh, good. Thank you, Hans. Paul, uh, question, comment? Yeah, John, thank you. Um, as I as I mentioned, as I have mentioned in in an email to folks that that um, I really feel that, that uh, first of all we we didn't get much of a chance to take a look at this thing. My first look at this report was this morning. Um, I understand that the the in some ways this is sort of as I mentioned there that this is sort of replaying some of the stuff that went on in Martha's Vineyard, and uh, the Tetra Tech folks were there and they made their presentation. And um, there were there was a rebuttal that was mounted, and and so the 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 two panels who weighed in the two major panels of Martha's Vineyard Commission, and then later on the planning board, um, did not see eye to eye on this kind on this thing. So I think that it is it would be useful and valuable for the commission to be able to hear from these other folks. Um, I noticed that throughout the report, much of the sector tech report rests on the idea that that based on their experience, that there isn't any problem with PFAS in the materials, but there have been um, other scientists, including uh, Kyla Bennett of the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility and Graham Peasley at the University of Notre Dame, who've tested a bunch of these uh, component pieces and actually have found PFAS in them. And the Tetra Tech folks just mentioned right now that, that it's not really within the thing that they've been doing very much to take a look at uh, things like uh, environmental degradation to the materials once they're there, as well as precursor elements that are there. And I know both Kyla and Graham have talked about that. In fact, they've both noted that that some of those elements actually create a much bigger problem than problems in, in sort of just the existing 
uh, the existing pieces that that are that are uh, that are there uh, that uh, new pieces that you might take a look at and might be tested in a lab. I mean, there's just lots of little things. Uh, Wendy pointed up, asked the question about microplastics. Microplastics are a huge problem, um, the, separate from from the rest of it. In fact, it's it's a huge problem in Europe, where they're discovering a tremendous amount of microplastics. Thousands and thousands of tons of microplastics are showing up in the waters off portions of Europe, mostly because they have so many plastic pitches there. So I, I think that that there are uh, a lot of elements I think that that um, still need to be discussed. Um, even the idea of shunting the water uh, into the wetlands, if it turns out that PFAS are a problem, and, and also there, there seems to be some idea that 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 the PFAS levels perhaps are, are bigger in the soil or higher in the soil now than than they could possibly be uh, as if uh, in the turf elements. It's sort of this sort of suggestion that one cancels the other out somehow when in, when in fact uh, PFAS are in fact bioadditive because they don't go away. So anything that you add to PFAS that are there just raises the PFAS level. I, I, I think that, as I said, I think that there are a lot of, uh, so if, if, if PFAS is a problem, and if PFAS can get into the water, it seems to me that it creates a bigger problem for the commission who is watching out to safeguard the wetlands if you're dumping additional PFAS into the wetlands themselves. Anyway, this is a lot of this, I admit, is uh, way above my pay grade. So I think that it would be useful to, to take a pause, to take a look at the, some of this stuff and to bring in uh, a couple of people who have credentials and who have potentially alternative views so that the commission can weigh these things. Understood. And that's what I've got. Thank you, Paul. I see some hands raised. I know uh, Mary uh, Firabend, your hand is raised. Would you like to speak? Yes, thank you, Commissioner. Um, my first question is the woman, Ingrid, um, who you said you waited for, is she a voting com a conservation committee member? Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you. Um, the next thing is, you know, I feel like we're going back and, you know, we are going in circles. We're not trusting the science. We've all been on the same Zoom now for over an hour listening to the test results. And there are professionals in this room that have presented. And we just heard from a member in this group that is still asking for more professionals, different professionals. So I just want to highlight the fact that the town has repeated the same testing two times found money to pay for that second testing, we still are making no progress. I was really hoping, and I'm disappointed for the second time now in a row, that we have not gone to vote. Maps have been provided by Huntress for several months now. I know that now we are considering draining into the wetlands, but at some point, when are we going to trust the science? The numbers don't lie. I just want to bring that point to the committee. Thank you very much, Mary. Tim, um... I see your hand raised. Would you like to speak? Uh, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, I hope everyone can hear me. My name is Tim Anastasia. We can. Uh, a volunteer uh, coach with Milton Youth Football, as well as deep roots in, in the Milton community, being born and raised here. And uh, I must say, I'm a little embarrassed that almost every question was answered. 
And it seemed to me that a lot of the people either on the commission or, uh, or Paul there just don't trust the answers. You know, we did hire, like Mary said, for a second time, professionals, experts in their field. They gave us the, you know, what their answers are, and we either take them as fact or we don't. And if we don't take them as fact, then why did we hire them? You know, they said the water uh, temperature does not rise. You know, they want the drainage to be in front of the wetlands, so if we so we do it. They said the temperature, you know, typically on the field does not raise because, uh, or doesn't affect the water temperature because it's usually cooler and raining, which is kind of common sense. They said there's almost no PFAS in the product that this community wants. This is a this is what they said as fact. So I don't I really don't understand why can't we vote? Like why aren't we voting? Everything that we asked has been answered. Our children are still playing on this field and they're getting hurt daily. We need action. There's no reason to prolong the vote. So I'm I'm requesting we vote tonight. We vote now. We have all the information that we need to vote. So, Commissioner, that's my question. Why aren't we voting? Uh, I think there are two reasons. One of them uh, is that you heard the question from Hans uh, to Chris Huntress. Can you do the recommended design change? Because keep in mind that we are looking at the recommendations from TetraTech, and they have proposed the design change. We need but, to and, know. And Huntress said yes. Huntress, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. I'm yeah. sorry, Commissioner. But Christian, did you say you could do it? Yes. Right. So, so now he has to do it. Yes. We, yeah. we operate on the record. You heard the question from Hans. Can you get us a design change that shows where you're going to put this into the, the wetlands? I mean, this we are dotting I's and crossing T's. We need an engineering plan from an engineer that says this is the outfall. This is where it's going. The okay. current plans don't work, or there's a better way to do it. I understand. So, so I agree with you. So, so then to drill this down, if he provides plans that show that it can drain into the wetlands, that that means that every question has been answered. So once he provides that, can we go to vote? I, I think we can. I, I know that uh, it, it, Paul indicated that he's got some uh, people that need a chance to respond. It's uh, I'm very grateful for Tetra Tech working because the contract was delayed, but they got right on it and they submitted the report. You've seen the report. Um, I think they answered the questions that we had. Um, but I, I believe that uh, some of the opponents from the Grass for Guile group uh, would like a chance to respond to that. And I think they're entitled to do that. Oh, okay. All right. So from what I heard from that statement was the Hundreds presents a new plan with, with the new drainage, then all, all of the necessary questions that uh, the Conservation Committee has put out there have been answered. And we will just listen to, to Paul's uh, statement next time, and then we'll go to vote. I, I don't think it's Paul's statement. I think he was talking about having some other people uh come in um but, but, but he, essentially are you're, you are correct. hired by the town or are they hired by so my question is so he brings someone in 
do they have a heavier hand than the actual company that the town hired to provide the answers? That's my question. No, so why are we listening to them? It's up, it's up to the commission to assign the weight to the information that we're receiving. It's, it's up to us to make the decision based upon the data that's presented. So, so no, do we, we don't have a heavier hand. Do we it's, feel it's that what, what was provided is accurate right now? Does the commission does the commission feel what has been provided by Tetratech is fact and valid? Like, do we trust what they said is accurate, or do you commission? Are you looking trust? for a pre-vote? Because that's not going to happen. I know. I'm just asking you if you, <laughs> you got a straw vote that you're looking for, or what? <laughs> you, do you does the does the commission believe what they just heard is truth? Can someone answer I, that? I sure I I can I I, I assign uh, I have high regard for uh, Tetra Tech. We've used them in the past. We've used some others. Uh, there have been a number of people. Uh, I I assign great credibility and and weight to uh, some of the others. I know that uh, for instance, uh, Kerry Snyder from the Neponset River Association asked some very good questions. Yeah. Uh, I assign weight to that. Yeah, I do. I believe the questions have been answered, by the way, because I went back and when I saw the report, I went back and I looked at what I know what our questions were, but I wanted to know what other questions were from um, some of those that had voiced concerns. And I, I think those questions have been answered. Been answered. Okay. I, said, I think they have. Been right. Yes, I do. All right, yeah, thank no, you. I, I'm grateful for Tetra Tech, but I, we're not going to do a, a straw vote. And I think from a due process perspective, um, and by the way, if we vote tonight or we vote, um, uh, you know, next month, the field's not going in this fall. I mean, it's just as a practice. We've had this discussion before. So, yes, it's been delayed, but there's there's no downside to completing the process at this juncture. Uh, just as there was no just downside to awaiting the information that we just received from Tetra Tech. It was worth the wait. It answered the oh, yeah. questions. I believe oh, it answered the questions that we had. I understand that, but the, there's no reason. Like, you don't don't hire an expert if you're not going to take what they say is as valid, right? And then don't wait for a vote just because you can. You know, you know, don't wait what you can do today. You know, if you you know for next week, it's just a, not a feasible way to to live life. So. My guess is I'm hoping we do a vote next next month. Because I sure we, hope so. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've been doing this for we're, we're running around in circles, and eventually you just cut corners, right? Like, no, we, so we're trying we not have, to cut uh, any corners. All right, yeah, thank <laughs> no, you. I, hope I appreciate not. it. So, I right, thank you, thank you for right, listening to me, Steve. Steve Kelleher. You're muted, sir. We, we can't hear you, Steve. Oh, sorry about that. Thank you, okay. Mr. Chair. Um, similar to Paul, I just received the letter this morning, so I've just started to review it. Um, I do have some questions regarding the letter. Um, in a couple of places, for example, it references based on data or it references, you know, very likely or references like, for example, just in the first question. Um, and I'm just curious because I've done my own searches on the internet and I found other data that may be in conflict. So I guess I'm curious, I mean, did you get a report in addition to this letter? 
Because I don't, like for example, the last question also references a project and we have no reference what project that is. It says there's a project done in 2021. Well, what project was that? Um, so I guess, again, I'm just trying to go through. If you're talking about, if you're talking about the, the test data, uh, that was not done by Tetratech. That was done by Alpha Labs. I think I think that's what you're referring to in 2021. That's a, a recognized federally licensed laboratory. I I think that's what you're referring to, but I'm not part. That's part of the public record. That we we've had that in the public record since day one. Mute it again. Steve, there you so go. Project, yeah, so what project is that? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding this. So what- T Testing that was done in 2021, I believe, is what okay. you're referring to, and that was the testing done by Alpha Labs. Okay. And do we have the data that's referenced in the first question? Um, I don't know what you mean by the first question. The first response, I'm sorry. It's, in the, it's the first response at the fourth line down. It says based on available data regarding the PFAS concentration levels. Because it seems like when you do research, it seems like it's not consistent. I mean, there's other data out there. Uh, I, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm not sure where you're reading from. I think the question to Mr. Reardon is what's the source of the data that um, you're referencing in, in response number one? So there was data provided with the application materials that that gave a a bar chart comparing the components of the turf system with the recent samples that were done on the superficial soils. All right. That that was the question. That was the answer. So I'm sorry. So maybe I have to uh, I have to go up and get that information. So it's not in this report. Then that's the separate report. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to figure out where it is. That's. It, it, yeah, there's it, a there is a figure in the submittal materials that indicates okay. what the contaminant the PFAS levels in the turf system are. We okay. also have ancillary experience on other projects, but you know that they're, they're unrelated to this. It just serves as the body of our experience. Okay, all right, and I'll just finalize or finish up by saying um, that this does continue to be a level, you know, both the federal and the state level. In fact. Um, and the commission is probably aware of this, there's actually two bills tomorrow, two Senate hearings tomorrow, S523 and S524 um, in the Massachusetts State Senate. So I just bring that up as this continues to be um, an issue, um, both again, nationally um, and locally. So, all right, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Steve Johnson, I see your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh... Uh, say that I'm definitely in support. I'm an abutting neighbor to Lower Guile Field, um, so I definitely have a vested interest in the uh, in this project. Um, I am definitely in support of the uh, the turfing of the field for um, the kids to play. Um, I will tell you is that um, you know I'll share similar sentiments that um, I think it's it's time to get to a, to a vote sooner than later on this uh, project and definitely see that it'll be likely next month. But it's clear that the, the grass for guile folks um, really are just waiting and it's a stall tactic to get the message that, or to get the answer that they're hoping to get, despite the fact that we've had all of these studies that we continue to waste money on, um, further money on to, to tell us the same things that were already done in the original testing. 
Some of these folks have houses that have PFAS materials in their own roofs that are incredibly close to the Brooks Edge. Um, and, you know, when I looked at uh, the membership for Grassford Isle, many of these individuals um, that, that, that are a part of this, that claim for child safety and all of these other elements, um, are all part of the same neighborhood. And I don't know about you, uh, Commissioner, but child safety is is not a neighborhood issue. It's a neighborhood, it's, it's an issue for everyone. And so I think we've been held hostage a bit to this process uh, by the Guile, uh, the Grass for Guile folks. And at some point it's, you know, again, everyone's got their research that they do, but my doctor tells me all the time I should never use WebMD to diagnose myself, right? <laughs> good, good advice. <laughs> right? So it's a similar sentiment that we can all do those same Google searches, but we've hired professionals and it's time to listen to professionals. Thank you. Th thank you, Steve, very much. Uh, and I, I only... Uh, I I guess I've got one one more hand up. Is that Tom Mario? Yes, it is. Thanks, so Tom. I heard a statement that the Conservation Commission needs everything to be on the record, such as the revised plan. Since that's how you operate, I'd like each commissioner to state exactly what they are looking for so that that data can be provided to them and stop further delays. I have not heard a concise question as to what exactly they're looking for. I'd like each one of them to go on the record as to what that item is so that it can be provided to them, answered, and everyone move on. Now, that's not the way the hearing works, sorry. But I will tell you this, that the concise, precise, written questions, numbering 10, is part of the public record. That, that formed the scope of work that went to five vendors. Those questions are in writing. They're in the public record. They've been available to you, and I bet you've already received them. So those are the questions that we had. Now, there are other questions that have been raised by other people in a public setting, and by due process, they're entitled to ask those questions. And if they can be answered, and I think that that's exactly what Tetra Tech did. They answered the questions we had. It's in writing. I, you cannot be more precise. I agree, I agree 100% with you. So, <laughs> so ready. Uh, we're ready to move I'm, on then. I'm very confused then as to why it cannot proceed. The record that we're referring to is we operate on the basis of design plans that are stamped by a professional engineer. And there are, you know, go into any of the public records for any of the projects, you'll see stamped plans that are approved by us after a vote. We don't have the new design plan yet. Chris says that he can do it. I think it can be done. It was a recommendation by Tetra Tech. And Chris says it can be done, but it hasn't been done yet. We need to have that plan that shows the, the distribution network uh, for the now redirected water so it does not go into Pine Tree Brook. Th those are the questions that were asked. They've now that been can, answered. It can be done, so let's do it. That sounds excellent. So that's so we're waiting on the revised plan. That's all we're waiting on. Yes, we're waiting on the revised plan. You are correct. And Nothing we're else. Also waiting, there are going, yes, there are going to be comments from uh, the Grass for Guile folks that uh, apparently they want to contest some of the findings made by um, uh, Tetra Tech. But that's part of the process. 
And no, we don't wait one more than another. We look for scientific reliability when we individually and collectively believe that we've got good, solid, reliable scientific data. We're going to move on it. And I do believe, you believe that can be done by the, at the next meeting. Do you believe you have reliable scientific data now? I, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think what we've seen is, is pretty solid. Excellent. But, Great I, news. I, but I've got an open mind. If there's somebody that can say, no, that's not true, then I, I'm ready to listen. So as long as you think that it's good information. Excellent. Great news. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, we, we're going to have to move fast now. We're, we're running out of time, folks. Um, Deborah Milbauer and Liz O'Rourke, and then we're going to move on to the next item. Deborah. By the way, we're going to address, Deborah, um, your no parking sign in under additional business because that's a, it's a good point. I think you got support here, so don't worry about that one. Great. Thank you so much. Um, okay. I My remarks are two minutes. I wrote them down so I could read them super fast and not waste uh, time fumbling for my words. So two minutes, Perfect. very fast. Thank you for sharing the report with us by email. I really appreciate it. I'm requesting that this board allow a Butters um, and those all over Milton, not just a Butters, but we uh, there is a broad-based consensus. Hundreds of people have signed this, not just a Butters. Um, and I'm requesting that the board allow um, uh, folks time to review the report and submit questions for the vendor. We are working with academic researchers who study plastic turf runoff, and we would like to give them an opportunity to comment on this, on this report. The questions and therefore the answers in this report that we only just received today did not capture the information that is needed to make a decision about runoff. There are many chemicals in plastic products. To only ask about PFAS is a biased way to assess environmental impact. To accurately understand the impact of plastic on conservation land, one needs to look at the full scope of the product components, not just one set of, of a chemical, one chemical, PFAS. Yes, PFAS is of urgent concern, but ignoring the hundreds of other chemicals in plastic is irresponsible and misleading. Uh, therefore, the methodology of this, the questions that were asked and therefore the responses is flawed, flawed because it was only asked about one thing. The suggestion that the chemical should run through the wetlands as a filter is theoretically accurate. Wetlands will act as a filter, but it is environmentally irresponsible. Isn't this board's mandate to protect the wetlands? Since when does runoff from plastic trump protecting wetlands? That's the whole mandate of this commission. And where is the evidence that there won't be a temperature change in the water because the rain will cool down the turf? Citations are missing to back up this assertion, which I've never heard before. The devastating impact of plastic microfibers in our oceans and our bodies is so universally understood and agreed upon that it is unfathomable to me that a report of this kind would exclude the impact of plastic microfiber runoff into the environment. And I realize you were just answering the questions, but the questions excluded um, uh, the full scope of information. Every one of us know that turf sheds plastic and all the literature backs this up. With all due respect, this report was written by a firm whose prior reports have been a source of contention in other communities. 
For example, the report referred to data found on the website of a plastic turf manufacturer. Brock Infill's entire business model is to sell plastic turf. Why is a professional engineering firm citing the website of a commercial business who stands to benefit from the data it posts? Speaking of citations, there were multiple scientific assertions in this report that are all missing citations. Because I only saw the report today, I did not have time to rebut each inaccurate assertion individually, but I, we plan to do so. Uh, many researchers have published data counter to the report who have agreed to testify on our behalf. It is not equitable to have one side present data and the other not given a chance to rebut with researchers and experts as was done here tonight. And John, I appreciate that you actually um, noted that earlier. Lastly, and I'm actually, um, somebody already said it actually, just so you all know, there's a, there are there's statewide legislation pending right now seeking data on the environmental impact as well. Senate Bill 523 is called an act to further research and report analysis of athletic performance services, their safety and recommendations, and Senate Bill 524, an act to consider the safety of artificial grass and turf services. Um, in conclusion, given that most of us just saw the report today, we ask that time is given for us to review the report more carefully and be given an opportunity to ask the vendor for clarification on multiple assertions. And I will add, um, I find it inappropriate, and I, I respect and appreciate everybody's input from all different views, but um, folks who are concerned about the, the chemicals in this plastic and how it'll affect the environment, hundreds of people we have spoken to, we've gotten signatures from hundreds of people, and I don't think it's fair to say, oh, own they don't care. It's not their responsibility to neighborhood to care about kids. I, I find that disrespectful. I am not critiquing the, um, I'm not questioning your anyone's interest in this. I understand why people have a, a vested interest in supporting or opposing. I, I'm not questioning anyone's motives. I, I question the data that's presented. So I just want to say there's hundreds of us all over town. We have signatures. We've been in web meetings, uh, uh, Zoom meetings. And so please refrain from stating inaccurate information. And I'm really grateful to the board for allowing this process to unfold equitably. I know you all are anxious to get it done, but this is about um, an equitable process. So I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for allowing me the time to say my remark. Thank you, Deborah. I think the last speaker is Liz O'Rourke. Go ahead, Liz. Okay. Um, hi. Hi. Um, thanks for um, having, uh, letting people talk tonight. Um, I've, it's been very interesting to hear all the different uh, information that we've been getting. Um, I did have a question about um, the data for the, uh, Chris Huntress, I believe, said the 25 year and 100 year storm data. Um, he, he referenced it in terms of uh, the, it, it wouldn't, you know, be a problem. But I know that, I guess my question is to Chris Huntress, is that data he's using for 25-year storms and 100-year storms, is that recent, is that based on recent data 
or is that is he using numbers from 20 years ago? I I just want to find out where he cites that information from in terms of flooding you, and the rain. You're talking about the the, the flooding data. Yeah, he was referencing yeah. 25 years. That's a pretty standard um, engineering uh, design term. And I actually, I think there are two sources. Chris, you can probably help me out. Uh, well, a lot of people can help me out on this one. As, as to one is um, National Oceanographic. Tom Palmer, you, you can give me the, the two different uh, definitions of five-year, 10-year, 25-year, 100-year storms. Uh, I think of them as elevations. And elevations you can draw on a map. Sure, and but... but What but it the, says is that there's one chance in 100 that a water from a storm will reach this elevation in any given year. But right. I think Liz's question was, are those elevations that Chris applied, how long have they been in effect? Yes. Um, I think a lot of people recognize that the ones that we've been using for years have been overtaken by events and are not really very useful anymore. Yes. That that is yeah, Chris, do you, do you want to respond to that, uh, where the data came from? I do. So can everybody hear me? Yes. The, um, the data comes from, and I'm trying to pull it up, the most recent FEMA maps, um, which are updated by Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA. Um, and that's what drives the elevation of the 100-year storm event, which is elevation 35, as Tom had said. It's it's based elevationally. Um the drainage calculations that we refer to when we talk about storm events being the, the 2, 10, 25-year storm event, those are engineering standards done through um, different modeling processes. TR-55 happens to be the one that we've used. Um, I am a landscape architect, not the uh, civil engineer, but John Barros, our civil, did come in and explain drainage to the commission, I'd be happy to ask a more specific question about where he got the, uh, the storm data, but it's it's current. I'd like to know what, how old the storm data is. It's, it's current. What it's is current it? What is current? What year? Did it now, today. That's the standard yeah. that's used today. So, so that data is from 2023. That that data is in the stormwater report, and it's stamped by the the civil engineer, and it's as current as is readily available for any storm data. The, the elevations for the 100-year flood are off the FEMA maps, and I would have to just check the date of the FEMA maps, which I can do and, and probably get back to you in just a minute because they're in our notice of intent application. Okay, I'd just like to know what year that data is from. That data is current, Ms. O'Rourke. So from FEMA? Oh, no, I'm sorry, I'll get you the FEMA. I'll get you the FEMA dates. Okay. I'm. I'm interested in the FEMA because that is relevant to what we're discussing. And if the the date of that the data is 2016, that was seven years ago. And I think things have changed. And I think we all know that. So that's why I was concerned. I also thank wanted you. to thank Tom Palmer for bringing up uh, a lot of the issues that I was concerned about when I read the report. Um, I'm also very perplexed why there is no data and why they were working off of data that really is not accurate. Um, and I also, the Brock fill is 
as Tom Palmer pointed out, and as Chris Huntress has said, Rockville is wood. It is small, tiny pieces of wood. It looks like grape nut cereal, except it's much lighter. If you had some in the palm of your hand and you blew on it, it would just blow away. It's very light. I, I can't understand how that will protect. I really don't. It's just going to be all over the place. Thank you for letting me talk. Thank you very much, Ms. O'Rourke. All right, and that's that's the last hand that I see. Um, this will be uh, continued until uh, what's the, the next uh, next date? Anybody have the date? Second fourteenth of November. Fourteenth. Thanks, Phil, very much. John, right. before we move on, um, yes. I have a, a request, Mr. Reardon. Um, if you could, since um, we're asking Mr. Huntress to provide an updated design, um, if you could um, cite some of your sources, um, I think. It, the, the members of the public might appreciate that. Um, maybe reissue the, the letter with, you know, some of the information that you're you're referring to, if possible. Yeah, sure, we'll do what we can. But just just keep in mind, we were we were asked to provide our opinions and our informed opinions. You know, this is not a oh a opinion. Thesis. Oh this is, this is, no data. This is our opinion. Liz, uh, you, you have to oh, I'm sorry. mute, mute I'm it, sorry. please. <laughs> so. Mr. Reardon, if you were referring to any specific data sets um, in, in in your responses, can you provide, uh, can you just update the letter to add references to those? Certainly. Thank you. Uh, one note, just a footnote. Uh, there was a discussion earlier about how rainfall under the largest storms infiltrates. And that's a little confusing to me. I think it should be addressed in the revised plan because I recall Mr. Huntress saying that there was an impermeable bottom of the system to prevent fines from coming up when the groundwater rises and getting into the voids that the system uses to provide you know, uh, space for water. So I think I would need in this new plan another elevation, so to speak, of the entire system showing all the parts and what they're made. Mr. Chair, just as a clarification, there is no, this system does not have an impermeable bottom and it never did. Um, what you're referring to, Mr. Palmer, is there are filter fabric layers that okay. are sandwiched between that would stop fines from migrating either up into the subbase or down below the subbase. So it's a filter fabric that stops those fine migrations. It's not an impermeable barrier. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you very much. So this will be continued. Uh, with the assent of the applicant until November, what is it, 14, Phil? Philip? Yes, the 14th of um, November. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and uh, hopefully we can conclude uh, on that date uh, with a vote. All right, thank you very much. Next on the agenda is um, this is the one that I, I called out in the beginning. Joe Federico, I saw you come back. Are you here on 1259 Brush Hill Road, Lot C and D? Hi, John. Uh, yes, I am here. Um, Chris Thomas from the BSC group, I believe, is also here as well. Um, if he's still here. Good, yeah. Hi, good right. evening. There uh, yep, we're here for um, 1259 Brush Hill Road. 
Y'all have to refresh our memory. This has been continued so many times. And I know that's been a point <laughs> yeah. of frustration for, for you. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, let me, uh, hold on. Let me share my screen real quick. Yeah, so to circle back from, I believe, our last hearing, probably uh, April or May of 2022, uh, we were requesting a, an RDA for Lot C at 1259 Brushell Road and an amendment to our order of conditions for Lot D. Um, these are two single-family house lots. Um Lot C is um, outside of the 100-foot um, BVW, and um, that's we're requesting an RDA. Um, so um, the reason this couldn't be um, voted on um, back in 2022 was because we're in um, an estimated um, habitat for salamanders, and we needed a MESA uh, conservation management permit, which we received on uh, October 6th. So we have that in hand. I believe that was um, distributed to the Conservation Commission as well. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, Philip, do you know if, if we've received the most recent? I can it check Kyle on that. Yeah, it was, it was, it should have been on October 6th um, that the commission received the copy from, from uh, uh, fisheries and wildlife from the state. Um, it, so, so they approved the, um, uh, the CMP for the taking of um, one point one six acres um, for a lot C and lot D uh, and the rest of the the rest of the two properties will become conservation restriction open space and this is the plan that they have um, approved as part of the permit all right I, I give us the, the big picture here because I know this is one that goes back um, I I haven't seen it, so and I don't think the other commissioners have either. But my understanding is that the the hang up for uh, the state was uh, we had required a wildlife corridor, uh, fifty feet wide, and yeah, then right. they, they they came back and and right said here. that's it. And that was I thought a great idea, and <laughs> we voted for it. Um, yep. But then there was a hang-up, and part of the hang-up was resolved by a conservation restriction. Tell us where those are going, because um, I think we had some initial discussions about whether or not the Conservation Commission would agree to accept um, the the conveyance of the restriction to us. And we're delighted to get any kind of a conservation restriction. Uh, but tell us what it, what it's required for and where it is. Yeah, so the um, basically the, the limit of clearing um, for these two lots that's shown here, that will be 
um, that will be uh, surveyed, have bounds, um, signs posted for the conservation restriction, um, and that limit of clearing will be the um, the limit for the conservation restriction for the two properties that will be recorded. All right, well, I, I I think we need to see it in hand. Um, this is probably about the the most sensitive environmental area in Milton, in addition to being an ACEC. Um, so I think we ought to that, at least have the plan. And I haven't seen it, so I have, I apologize if if others have. But has anybody seen it? No. And I I don't think any none of us have seen it. Um, I think so we I, need, Mr. Chairman, a full update. It's been, as you said period of time and um, an updating of all the materials since our last site walk would be very valuable at least from my perspective uh when when is the last time Chris that, that we addressed this you said it was in 22 uh yeah it was spring of 2022 um was probably the last hearing what was the last and action the, we took the, the reason that it, the reason that um, a vote couldn't happen was because we needed the conservation management permit, which we have just received from MISA. If I recall correctly, there was updated mapping that, right, that kind of triggered all this, and then, yeah, right, the two thousand. Um, I believe it's the 2019 mapping of the estimated habitat. Um, that's what that's what led to the permit being needed. Well, I you know I I really do not want to do anything that delays you further because I know how frustrating it's been for these last however many months. That's a long spring of 2022 is a long time ago, and I think everything is. Um, as it should be with the wildlife corridor and the conservation restrictions. Um, but I really do think that we need, as, as Arthur said, we need kind of a full briefing uh, with the, the new plans and permit in front of us, particularly if we're going to, you know, officially and formally accept the conservation restriction, which we should. Um, I, I think it's a grand idea. Uh, but uh, Philip, is that something you could check to see what we've got uh, in the file and then you have that delivered to us as well? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Mr. And Phil, if you don't have it, I will, um, I will forward, I will forward the permit. Mr. Sure, Chair, I'll check to see I'm sorry. I'll check, to, I'll check to see if I have the permit tomorrow. If not, I'll email you. Okay. Arthur, go ahead. I was just wondering if this is something that might be included in Saturday's work. It, it, it I'll have to defer to Phil. If you can get it to us fast enough, uh, sure. It can be done electronically. I'll, I'll work on it tomorrow. Hopefully we'll have it tomorrow. All right. If we can get it tomorrow, then uh, Chris and, and I know, know it's been a long process for you, but I I think you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's. So why don't we put this on uh, for Saturday? Um, so we're going first 
to uh, Gun Hill, then we're going to 31 Highlands. Highland. We we don't have to go on site, but it, it might be it actually might be helpful if we did go on site, and we could get it done on uh, Saturday. It would probably be about you know ten o'clock or so. Um, the well the the no no bounds have been set, so that um, there's nothing really there's nothing really new to see. Well, we've got to do it somewhere. So, um, uh, if if we're we're in a public meeting which we have to do and we have to announce it as such um, and put it on the agenda, which all is fine. But if there's anybody that was interested, um, they wouldn't know where we were going to consider it because the last place will be is 31 Holland street. Um, we could, we could do it there as, as long as we notice the public, if anybody's interested in it. Anybody have a feeling on that, uh, Tom Palmer? I, I know you know this is a sensitive area, and, and Wendy, and what well, we all do. Yeah, um, I would be willing to uh, move once we have everything, but this permit, which is the new thing, we don't have. And uh, I think we need to discuss that, although I don't know if we need to do it on the site. Um, but how soon can we have it? Uh, that's really the issue. I think. Now, Philip thinks he can get it tomorrow. Well, good. You know, I'm curious about it. I can't remember us getting another copy of a conservation permit from Heritage. Um, so it should be interesting. And uh, I have questions about CRs, too. Like, you know, I wonder if this is going to be one of these CRs we have to remember to renew. That's the first question I have, I guess. Okay, but but the real question is, can we get it done Saturday morning? I think the answer is yes. Uh, we'll we'll have a quorum there, and we can do it at thirty one Holland Street as long as it's. We don't have to go to the scene if, if uh, I don't really care. We can do it anywhere as long as we're in a public setting, in an announced public meeting. Uh, we can take a vote. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you there, but. I hope we'll all have a chance to review it by then. I, I think we will. Chris, do you want to be there? Because you can meet us at 31 Holland Street if you want. Or Joe, if, yeah. if it doesn't matter. I, I can meet you there. Okay. So we'll put it on. We'll just continue this until uh, Saturday the 14th. And uh, we'll meet at 31 Holland Street. And uh, it'll be at approximately, well, it might be a little earlier than that because we don't have to travel. Somewhere between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. All right? That works for me. All right, good. Perfect. Then we'll continue it until Saturday. Thanks. <laughs> which, which leads us to uh, approval of the minutes. Uh, this has been kicked so many times now since March. Um, and I, I confess that I haven't read uh, the last ones. Um, so if, if others have read it and are comfortable, um, I mean... I, I now I don't know what is in there because I asked Steve to make an amendment. Why don't we do it Saturday? Because I did ask Steve to amend one of the minutes from uh, September, but I don't know if it was the twelfth or the thirtieth. Um, see, and I can I can describe that, but I'd, I'd rather have it in my hand. And I I don't know if he made the change, so I I don't know what it looks like. So. 
why don't we kick this and Philip, can you put this on the agenda for Saturday as well? Sure. Okay. Thank you. And that takes us to uh, additional business. And I don't know if Deborah is still with us, but uh, Hans, you'd be interested in this. I think it's outside the scope of what we were discussing on the, the Lower Guile Road turf field, but it does relate to that. And uh, Deborah had indicated uh, something that the neighborhood would appreciate uh, a no parking sign. And uh, some of the neighbors are concerned because people are obviously parking in our jurisdictional wetlands. Hans, I know this is near and dear to your heart. Um, and we're actually looking for changes in the design plan to show the location of the fence. Now, now I'm going back to the field. But for this purpose, I did call Chase Berkeley um, because DPW has to do it. I mean, we don't have the signs or the manpower to put it up. Um, but I, I, I support the idea. Um, and I'm not, I don't think this uh, requires anything tonight. However, Deborah, for your benefit, we've been putting up signs ourselves to mark conservation land. And, and we feel that we have to uh, have a permit application for that. So we file an RDA. I don't think you have to do anything. We can probably take care of this for you. Uh, but we'll have to file an RDA because if we're putting a signpost into our uh, our land, uh, then we need to give ourselves permission to do that. Uh, I know that sounds like a lot of form over substance, but uh, I I think we can get there. However, I have to say to you, I, I you know we don't have any enforcement power, and if we can put up a sign, I, I'm not sure that's going to do a whole lot in terms of keeping people from parking there. So it, I guess it requires some kind of police enforcement uh, for that. I, I don't know, but we don't have the the jurisdiction to do that. Uh, the, the town does. I think the real solution is going to be as part of the Guile Road field, whatever is done there. It, part of the design is to put up a fence there and to block access to that land. And then- uh, Not a fence, bollards. What's that? Bollards, yeah. yeah. Not not a fence, but yeah, something that would prevent vehicles from being able to access through there, provided the fire department or whatever emergency access is is still allowed. But yeah, that's generally right. I, I think the sign we can get done pretty quickly, uh, but the ballers will require some kind of a design plan because I, I actually don't know where it would be appropriate to put that. Um. So that's additional. Happy to mark it out for you. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. And, and yeah, no, Chase Berkeley was was very cooperative and said, you know, that's it shouldn't be an issue. Um, so good. we are moving forward, Deborah, and that was a, it was a good suggestion. I'm not sure it's going to solve the problem, but it's a start. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Two very quick comments. So the two clearings are right between the bridge and the entrance to the high school property, right? Which I sent you pictures of. But the yes. other clearing that also is really big, even bigger, is at the Elm and Gulliver dead ends where they converge. There's a huge area and the neighbors actually parked there also. Um, and just to clarify the sign, one sign is like demarcation that it's conservation land, but another sign that specifically says this, no parking because this is conservation land. And maybe, you know, um, I know what the 
I don't know if there's pre-existing signs already made or we have, or you all have the discretion to put on it what you want. But I know with the dog waste, the, you know, the dog waste signs, they'll say, you know, dog waste runs, it contaminates the environment. Please pick up after your dog. It would be good to say, you know, parked cars on conservation land contaminates the environment. We appreciate your not parking here. But the other comment, although I'll just settle for a no parking sign, that's fine too. Um, the other comment is that I do think that it's a deterrent for people. Um, it, it might not eliminate it, of course, but I don't think not having um, um, consequences should deter just at minimum, just a no parking sign, because people have no idea. I didn't know either you weren't supposed to park, park there. So people right now don't have any idea. So um, that's all. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, good. All right. And and Hans, uh, <laughs> uh, you you can be the uh, prime mover on on this one, and and maybe we can coordinate it with some uh, some other barriers uh, that still keep an open access for public safety vehicles. All right. I I I think that the the two things are super. One is very complicated, obviously, and I was just thinking a quick hit would be just a no parking sign while we're also figuring out the other stuff, which is going to take a lot. I, I agree with you. And that's that's Thanks. I think that's the strategy. Okay. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. OK. Um, any Thank other addition? Yes. Any other additional business? No. Um, is that a hand raise? Where? Oh, I, I like it all. I like a real hand. I was looking for the the magic sign, Elizabeth Pyle. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I think maybe we um, skipped over my matter earlier on the agenda. I'm here to talk about um, 648 to 652 Canton Ave in Milton, which oh, was on for informational did. purposes tonight. Oh you use the God. old agenda. <laughs> I use the old agenda. Oh, Elizabeth, I'm I'm awfully sorry, and I've got all kinds of people waiting for, for this. I I am embarrassed here. I had the wrong agenda. Oh, okay. Because so, we received <laughs> well, two. I'm glad I, to. I, it's glad number to get... five on the agenda. I I apologize too. That's okay. I th I, I thought because it was an informational request, perhaps you were going to no, move on. Oh gosh, no, Dan Hill, uh, you're probably going to shoot me. Are you still? And, and I know Jesse's is here as well. Yes. Um, thanks very much for hearing me now. Um, my name is Elizabeth Pyle, um, an attorney with Dan Hill at Hill Law. And we just wanted to um, bring some matters to the commission's attention this evening about the um, DEP proceeding uh, for this matter. And um, we would like to request that the commission participate in the current DEP proceeding and ask DEP to affirm its to affirm your denial order of conditions, at least as to infiltration system number one and the emergency access driveway for this property. And uh, Dan Hill sent a letter today to you explaining our position and including an analysis from our engineer, John Chesia, 
And I believe that you have that before you, but we, we just wanted to bring to your attention that on September 13th, the DEP analyst on this matter issued a letter to the applicant requesting modification of the proposed stormwater management design. However, this letter ignored the commission's position that more information was required from the applicant, at least as to infiltration system number one, which discharges into the buffer zone and toward the wetland and stream. Um, DEP's letter made a blanket statement that um, since most of the discharges are outside of the buffer zone, that the commission should not have requested more information for infiltration system number one. But we think this is incorrect because um, it is clear that that infiltration system discharges to the buffer zone. So we were hoping that the commission could send uh, DEP a letter stating that more information is required for at least this part of the stormwater management system concerning infiltration system number one and ask the DEP to uphold the commission's denial for insufficient information, um, at least on this basis. Um, the second point that we wanted to raise and that we um, put forward in the letter that Dan Hill submitted today was that um, uh, DEP's information request asked the developer to redesign the emergency access driveway so that it meets the 80% TSS standard. And last week, a new plan was submitted by the developer that includes um, porous pavement with a subgrade liner. Um, we provided a letter today from our engineer, John Chesia, confirming that this design still does not meet the 80% um, TSS standard, still does not comply with the stormwater handbook, and will not function to meet that, that TSS standard. And the reasons that he listed in his uh, letter that you have is that the proposed change um, would not make the driveway an infiltration system because there's an impermeable liner underneath the driveway. So it wouldn't infiltrate to obtain that 80% um, TSS removal. Um, he also noted instances where the design doesn't comply with the stormwater handbook. Um, it's too steep at 10% grade, whereas porous pavement um, should only be used at 5% grade or less. Um, the base of the porous pavement system is supposed to be flat, but here it's on a slope. And also the whole thing would be located within 100 feet of the um, resource area and 10 feet of the property line, both of which are not allowed under the stormwater handbook. So we just wanted to bring this all to the commission's attention. And um, we, we're going to be submitting some information to DEP on this, and we would just uh, wanted to request that the commission also provide comments to DEP um, on the inadequacy of this design and request that DEP affirm the denial. So I, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer any questions. And otherwise, that's what I just wanted to tell you tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Elizabeth. And I apologize again for skipping right over that. Okay. That, the, the number that's on the new agenda, not the old agenda. Um, and I, and just for the public's benefit and the other commissioners, I, I am generally copied on the DEP correspondence um, 
as is just Jesse Schumer and Dan Hill and uh, Elizabeth Pyle. And uh, we're in kind of an awkward position. We are a stakeholder, certainly, uh, uh, in the proceeding before DEP. Uh, whether we're a party or not, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure. Uh, but we have a, an interest in it. And uh, I guess the question for us is um, the appeal of our denial of the permit has gone to DEP and they will at some point issue a superseding order and the superseding order can, um, you know, re reverse us, uh, overrule us, amend uh, us, consider our decision or not. Um, and at that point, we would be in a position to uh, file an appeal um, as, as would the neighborhood group as well. Um, so the question then becomes, well, if we take an appeal, we have to go to town council to do that. We have to have the approval of the select board uh, to authorize the payment, uh, to have them represent the board in taking the appeal. So the question is, um, do we have an appealable issue at this time? Because I, I think that the, the letter that I think was distributed to all commission members uh, it did say that uh, they rejected our denial uh, because they felt that we did not state a reason why we needed the information, which I personally thought was strange since the language of the letter actually said why we needed it. Um, but in any event, uh, that was the same ruling that they gave in the 582 uh, Blue Hill Avenue uh, request for information as well. So it's the, the same DEP response that we hadn't stated why we needed the information. Um, so uh, again, that the issue has come up before for us. Do we wait for a superseding order and then make a decision with the advice of town council to appeal or not appeal? Or do we weigh in before that? And weighing in before that is particularly appropriate. I think we've gone to, I, I personally have gone to uh, those meetings. I think Arthur Doyle, you were at one of the meetings with uh, the DEP at 582 Blue Hill Avenue. Um, I went to the one at uh, 648, 652 Canton Avenue and met with the DEP um, uh, official. So I, I guess, um, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure we have a role at this point but if we do, it would be, as Elizabeth suggested, to just make a statement, make a comment about what our feelings are. Uh, but Jesse, I, I would invite you to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I am a party, I'm not a party, or what? Uh, good evening, Mr. Chair, and, and thank you for, for allowing us to be heard tonight. Um, for the record, my name is Attorney Jesse Schomer. I represent the uh, the applicant and the developer on this, on this project, as you know. Um, I, I won't I won't say you're wrong about anything you said, uh, Mr. Chair. I would I guess I would just like to correct a, a point uh, with respect to the procedural posture of this of this matter. Um, the letter that you refer to, Mr. Chair, issued by DEP, constitutes a determination by the Northeast Regional Office, and I think it's it's a mischaracterization to say that it was just this D, this DEP reviewer. Uh, Mr. Farrick, this is reviewed by the by the section chief, um, and the the determination that's made in a in a, a project like this, where the order of conditions issued by the commission is to deny the project for lack of information, 
there's a two-step process that's made in this case. And DEP has already made the determination that the commission's uh, denial for lack of information um, was not an appropriate finding and has proceeded to review the project on the merits. So that's where we are at this point. DEP is reviewing the merits, the point of, of whether uh, whether the, the denial for lack of information should be affirmed has passed for the moment, but I think you're correct, Mr. Chair, to say that that's an appealable issue that the commission uh, could choose to appeal to the to the Office of Appeals and Dispute Resolution if you choose to. And uh, Attorney Pyle and Attorney Hill's clients have the same have the same right uh, to do the same, uh, having been participants in the the underlying matter. Uh, so with that, I, I I don't really have anything further to say, Mr. Chair. I don't think it's appropriate to comment on the substance of the letter that was filed today, because I, I agree with the point that you made that really there's not much for the commission to do at this point. It's it's just a matter of uh, DEP issuing their superseding order, and we can all determine where we go from there. Well, I, I haven't read what uh, Dan Hill sent today. Um I haven't seen it. And uh, I, to whom was it sent? Was it a DEP filing or? No, it was sent to you. Um, and and it, it was sent to you and um, Attorney oh. Schromer and um, I believe the commission. And uh, just checking, did you not receive anything from us today? I, I was in court this afternoon, so I, okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> Okay, so I, I um, probably I probably did if he said if, it, if, if you haven't was. received anything from us, I'd be happy to send it again. Um, I don't know if there was some problem with the email getting bounced back, but I didn't receive any notification. Um, but I'm happy to provide anything to you, and um, please check to make sure that you have a letter from Dan Hill today, enclosing correspondence from John Chesia, and that really lays out. Um, the matter, as I just explained to you here, and um, I agree now is with um, Mr. Schroeder that now is not the time to take an appeal, but we're just asking you to provide comment as they continue with their review. Um, this would be the opportunity to provide comments to DEP should you choose to do so, and we're hoping that you would. All right. No, I I understand that, and uh, you know I'm very sensitive to the open meeting law in, in terms of discussing this. Uh, if we discuss it, it should be on the agenda, um, and which it is. And uh, I I'm not sure if there's a, a response or a consensus as to whether or not we should make a comment or or not, um, and or do we simply defer to town council as to whether or not I mean they did DEP did take a position that said that we were not entitled to deny the permit because of lack of information and they also and, said because we didn't explain the reason why we wanted it which I I take strong issue with but um be that as it may I mean I guess we could make a comment that in fact the language that they quoted actually says in good old English language the reason we need this is to to see whether or not uh, to test the or evaluate the efficacy of the the drainage system, and to see whether or not the mounting has an impact um, on the you know on the design features. 
so I'm I'm kind of stumped at what we do. I what I because I, I want to make sure that it's done in a public setting and done appropriately with under the open meeting law. But what I suggest is that may, maybe this is executive uh, <laughs> executive session because it involves litigation. I don't know. What I'd like to do is talk to Tom uh, to Town Council Peter Mello and ask for his advice as to what we what we should do. Um, and I guess if it if it relates to uh, litigation that would be executive session. Oh, Jesse, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm glad you you raised that point, Mr. Chair, and I, I I hope it's understood and and recognized by the commissioners uh, that this this matter is the subject of pending litigation by Hill Law, um, which relates to among other claims. Um, I, I, claim against the town of Milton and the Zoning Board of Appeals that the approval of the project under the comprehensive permit statute constituted uh, imminent damage to the environment. Um, and, and the basis of that claim is essentially these same issues that Hill Law has been raising with respect to the, the groundwater mounding analysis. So I, I would encourage the commission to, to get the advice of your council um, the, in addition to uh, Mr. Mello, the um, the town has also retained Hemingway and Barnes uh, to represent the town with respect to that uh, Superior Court litigation, and and um, I'm happy to provide the commission with a copy of the um, the complaint um, that has been filed by Hill Law that that outlines their their uh, environmental damage claims. Yeah, it would be great if you could do that. I'd I'd be grateful. Sure. And, and, or we could too, whatever, whatever you prefer. That would be that would be helpful. And then we could then the yeah. commissioners would know, <laughs> have a better idea of what we're talking about. Um all right. Well, thank you. This uh, this you know was on the agenda for informational purposes, and it's it's accomplished just that, exactly what it was intended to do, to get us up to speed as to where this project is uh before DEP and uh we can consult with council to see if if a we have any options and b we should take advantage of those options so thank, thank you, you any, any questions or comments from commission members Arthur, any thoughts i think we're on the right course okay all right fair enough thank you and i, and I again at least and, and jesse i i apologize for using the wrong agenda um so thank Not you for your patience and your, and your courtesy. No um, problem. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for hearing us. All right. Thank you. Anything else? Uh, additional business, folks? Hearing none. Uh, motion to adjourn. Somebody? <laughs> Good. Okay. So Wendy made the motion to adjourn, and uh, I'll second it. All right. All in favor? Aye. 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 Good. God bless you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Good night, all. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night, everybody. Take care. See you Saturday. Yes, yes, indeed. See you Saturday. 8.30. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs>